Welcome to Savvy Sab's podcast on Colin. This is episode 39, Chris Hedges' Democracy. Chris Hedges' recent article addresses the illusion that we have a democracy in the United States. He particularly addresses the class divide and exploitation. Do you believe that we have a democracy? So I definitely uh, want to hear from you guys. So feel free to call in. Something that was really interesting to me about that article, it seemed like he was able to point out not just the issues that we have with our voting system in our country, but also the issues that we have with the class system in this country. What should be happening when we vote for these politicians, they really should be helping out the people. They're public servants, or they're supposed to be public servants. And they're not actually doing that. So if they were helping out the people, obviously you want to lift up those who are at the bottom first. You want to lift up people who are poor. You want to lift up people who are working class, right? The politicians that we've had in office over, I would say, the past couple decades have not been doing that. And that's a big part of the problem. So what you have is basically a system in this country that has been working to serve the oligarchy. And that speaks for the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. That's both of them. Both of them do it. At one point, the Democratic Party used to be for the working class people. That was a long time ago. As long as I have been alive, I haven't seen that. I mean, if you're in the chat and you have seen that, let me know. I really haven't. And I think we need to think about what would a true democracy look like? And I want to hear like your opinion about that. Like would, does a true democracy mean that we get rid of the electoral college, for example, would that mean we have a true democracy? Does a true democracy mean that third party and independent candidates wouldn't have to jump through all these hoops just to get on the ballot, only to be removed off of the ballot? Would that be a true democracy? Would a true democracy mean that voters actually have more say when it comes to policies? What exactly would that look like for you? And I want to hear from uh, you guys. And I think we have a caller here. This is Karthik. So I'm going to go ahead and make you the next caller what's up savvy nice to talk to you again um you're talking about definitions or like what would a democracy in america look like and um i guess like you're obviously getting rid of electoral college like you know popular national popular vote um bring choice voting things like that um oh by the way i love that lots of people say you got to vote democrat for voting rights but they're not in favor at all of ranked choice voting or third parties because they'll say the TYT left will say that'll uh, elect Republicans. But that's unrelated, I guess. Um, but yeah, obviously those are like the beginning. And like, obviously like you got to find some way um, to get the politicians to be somewhat representative of us. I guess it's a little better on the local level than state or federal, especially federal. Um but so obviously, like let's say, like there was like theoretically, let's say in ten, twenty, thirty years that like uh, money was out of politics and it was all just public funding. 
I still feel like there would be like so many incentives to sell out just because, you know, obviously like, 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 like there might be like some global, um, uh, organizations that like you're pushing like, like, uh, uh neoliberal policies, like, like, like WEF and also the, uh, uh, international monetary fund and like, you know, things like that, but also like, like just within, um, the country, like there'll be like, People think like, oh, I I gotta get a book deal eventually. Oh, I I gotta get like a consultant gig, or I I gotta get speaking gigs, or you know, I want to work at that bank after you know the revolving door. Um, and maybe like I'm saying this because like because like America has like has a fucked up democracy for so long, you know, like I get say like I, I know people obsess over Citizens United and like quote unquote dark money, but even if you did that, like those two things would do very little to nothing probably if you like just got out of if all the money was transparent and it was like money in politics was like pre-2010 um so i'm just saying as cynically like i'm not sure like obviously i'm obviously if we took money out of politics would be better but there would like still be so many incentives for politicians politicians to not represent us either way that's interesting what what do you think those other incentives will look like i'm just curious yeah, like what I just said, like, like obviously, like there would be like international organizations putting pressure for neoliberal policies, but also like because you know, like I, I, oftentimes, like politicians, like after they leave office, like you know, they get a consultant gig or a speaking gig or book deal or whatever, you know, and like there's no way that like because because obviously politicians like will want to get rich, you know, um, that's why people want power. So I'm just saying, like, even if there is all public funding there would still be incentives like those that I just mentioned, you know, like revolving door policy that like would incentivize a politician not to represent people. That's a good point. You mentioned ranked choice voting and that was one I I didn't, um, I forgot to mention. Ranked choice voting is another one where like you need to give the people more choices. Like you need to give them more options and, there's only the only states I know so far that has ranked choice voting is Maine and I think one district in Nebraska. We have Alaska have it now. That's why Sarah Palin was complaining about her loss. That's right. That's right. You're right. I forgot about that one. Um, but look at the effect that ranked choice voting had, right? In reference to Sarah Palin. And I think that's what some of the politicians are afraid of. They're afraid that if we implement ranked choice voting, then they may lose. But then I just say you should be a better politician then. You should be better at your job. But I think that ranked choice voting, you know, it was it was kind of disappointing. It didn't pass here in Massachusetts. Like it was on the ballot for 2020. And I oh, think yeah. most people I talked to, the reason why it didn't pass is because they said they didn't understand the question, okay. which I can understand. <laughs> if you weren't paying attention I- to it, I could understand how it was probably confusing. This is probably a stereotype, but I can imagine like Massachusetts is full of uh, Warren Democrats. Yeah, it's, you know, Massachusetts is an interesting place. Uh, I would say Eastern Massachusetts, which is where Boston is located. You know, Bernie got a lot of support. He got a lot of support from Boston and Somerville, Cambridge, although Elizabeth Warren also got a lot of support, especially from Cambridge, uh, because that's where she is. And then you have parts of Massachusetts, like I would say, I would say the 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 middle of Massachusetts, which is where Worcester is located. Once you get outside of Worcester, 
there are those towns, some of them tend to be uh, red, at least they are now. Whereas if you go back and look at the map when Barack Obama uh, ran, those uh, towns voted for Barack Obama. Some of them voted for him twice and then they turned around and voted for Donald Trump. Those tend to be mill towns uh, where there's more industrial like work. Oh, industry. Okay. Yeah, more like industrial work, uh, pro-union. Um, so like wor- working class or not working class, but some people will call them blue collar jobs here. But then if you go to Western Massachusetts and you go to Springfield and the Berkshires, those places tend to be blue. Uh, they got a lot of support from Bernie Sanders. But what messed Bernie Sanders up here was Elizabeth Warren still being in the race on Super Tuesday because she did pull support away from him. Some people who voted for Bernie in 2016 decided to vote for Warren in 2020 because she was a woman, just simply because she was a woman and told me so. So okay. it was like, <laughs> do you think some people uh, voted for Warren, like preferred her because like she's theoretically smarter because like she just seems like like a because you know she has a graduate degree, like she talks like a academic. That's part of it for some people. You know, she did teach at Harvard, so that has an impact on the Harvard community. But also, some people here fell for the misogyny smears against Bernie Sanders that mainstream media put out. Some people here believe that. They said, well, I decided not to vote for Bernie this time because he told Elizabeth Warren that a woman couldn't be president. Like, I'm like, you guys believe that? So that hurt, uh, I I think, as well. But the towns that supported Biden didn't surprise me. It was the suburban towns. It was like Lexington, Concord. Those are wealthy towns here, like very wealthy. That went to Biden. Bernie did the best in the cities and in the mountains. And other than that, you know, but there's, there's red pockets here as well. Um, our, our current governor is Republican. I don't Yeah. Know there's been like a surge in like, like blue States of like, but with red governors like Maryland. Um, yeah. Massachusetts. I've heard Vermont. Like I'm shocked. I, I really don't know how Vermont has a red, like a Republican governor. I don't understand that either because Bernie Sanders, believe it or not, guys, Bernie Sanders is still very popular in Burlington, Vermont. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. Like, I even saw a video of like the Republican governor praising Bernie Sanders. Like, I was like, oh yeah, you know, we disagree, but Bernie Sanders is a great person, great guy. Everybody loves him here. Yeah, they love him there. Um, but I think that I think we got a Republican governor because of what happened with the previous administration, uh, Governor Deval Patrick. Um, I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with him, but oh yeah, Wall Street guy ran for president. Deval Patrick, he he's he's a rather interesting story. Um, but he did something in reference to the public transportation system here, which was neglect for years. They were not he his office, his administration was not doing the maintenance on the trains. So by the time he was heading out of office, he was ending his term, the trains were a disaster. And so some people kind of looked at it as though, what did your administration do with all that money that was supposed to go towards the MBTA? You didn't fix these trains. There was no maintenance done. And so the, the train started falling apart and it's even affecting us still today. And it's been years. So now they've shut down certain lines, uh, 
in Massachusetts, the train lines, because these the, the trains can't run. They're that old and they're that like crappy. So there were people that were angry with him because of the neglect of the public transportation system and because they want to know where did all that money go? So what tends to happen, people go in the other direction. They're like, okay, maybe we should have a Republican governor. And when I say Republican, I think people people should know that Governor Baker is not, he's not a Trump Republican. He's not even a Liz Cheney Republican. He's more like a, I hate to use this term, but he's more like a lukewarm Republican. He's, he'll say he's like moderate Republican. So he's a Democrat. Kind of like he, that's why he was able to win here. That's why Mitt Romney was able to win in Massachusetts. So, I mean, granted, Mitt Romney's views have changed a little bit over the years since then, but. Yeah, Mitt Romney has it's, had it's, it's like really every weird. view possible. I'm surprised he hasn't said he's for Medicare. <laughs> yeah, and I think that when I hear people make the statement that it was all the Democrat, all the states that shut down were run by Democrat governors, I always raise my hand and say, uh, my state was shut down and our governor is Republican. So I don't know if everybody you know realizes that, but he is not running for a second term. Uh, he already announced that. So I don't know who's going to come in that spot after him. It's not looking too good so far. But um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. And I wish like Massachusetts was as progressive as people think we are. It's like I said, once you get out of the cities, it's not like that. Well, but I, I think, think now, like, for, like, I think now progressive just means Democrat it doesn't really mean any substance, you know, I think that's so all, you know, it's like, like I say, like, I feel like progressive used to mean a lot more like 10 years ago, but now like, like all the Democrats call themselves progressives. So it doesn't mean anything. Right. So we had a progressive candidate here running for governor, Sonia Chang Diaz, or she called herself progressive. I'm like, how are you progressive and you taking corporate money? So it just. She must be she progressively taking less than the Republican. Because that's all it means now. <laughs> it just means I'm not a, uh, I'm not a blood. I'm a crip. <laughs> that's a good point. Um, Yeah. She dropped out. So she's not in the race anymore, but she supported Medicare for all. Um, she was actually, she was one of the people that came to the March for Medicare for all. So I don't know. I, I don't know what's going to happen now, but you're right. I feel like the term has definitely been watered down and now it's just like anybody can call themselves progressive. Yeah. Maybe, uh, uh, Liz Cheney will call herself a progressive when she runs for president. Oh God. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I know Robert Reich said she should run for president. That guy's weird. Like, yeah, like, he used to be good. I actually did a, a project about him or an essay in college, and it was based on something like he wrote like 1992 or 93. Like it was like right as he joined the Clinton administration. And, and it was actually like about NAFTA. But what was funny is I'm not sure he criticized NAFTA when he was in office because I, I know George H.W. Bush was trying to, and maybe Reagan as well, I don't know, but at least H.W. Bush was trying to press NAFTA. And he was like pushing, like, "Hey, NAFTA's not good for us." But yeah, he's um, he's up and down. Like he's 
done some good stuff and not so good stuff now. And, you know, he's obviously anti third parties or whatever. But yeah, I'll let uh, Simon talk now. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks so much for calling in, um, Karthik. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, Robert Reich, he's pretty good on some of the labor issues, but then he'll make weird statements like, I want Liz Cheney to run for president. I'm like, who are you? <laughs> okay, Simon, uh, you are the next caller. Just have to hit unmute. How's it going? Hello, hey, how are you? All right, good. My dog's uh, finally got her under control, so we need to talk. From last time. <laughs> yeah, anyways, uh, so, uh, sorry, uh, what was the subject? I joined in late. Chris Hedges, uh, democracy. Um, yeah, yeah, I, uh, sorry, I, uh, couldn't find a link to your shows, but, uh, what I know about Chris Hedges is, like, he seems a little doomer to me. Like, I mean, like, I'm a, I only know cursory knowledge of, uh, politics, but, like, based on what he says, is like, personally, I'm like, why would I try in life if everything's structural, everything's really bad? Like, I don't know. That kind of deal. I don't know how, how you find him. Well, he was saying in his article, and I believe this was probably in response to that speech that Joe Biden gave recently in Philadelphia about helping the soul of the nation, which is really interesting. But... <laughs> I hate that line. I really do hate that line. <laughs> He said that uh, it means nothing. It means nothing. He said he was basically explaining how we don't really have a democracy in this country because the political system should be working for basically the people who are at the bottom, right? People who are poor, people who are working class. You want to lift them up first. And it doesn't. It works for corporations and oligarchs. And we don't have a fair voting system. So that's basically what he was talking about. He was relating democracy to the election system we have in this country and also the class issue yes oh yes yes uh i agree with those sentiments it's just i don't see serious solutions like i don't you don't like him as much as at least his opinion but Sagar and jetty and marshall kozlov i like their show not particularly because of their views but because of their pragmatic approach to issues they People keep going on about pie and sky, like, what if we pass Citizens United and all that and pack the courts? And I'm like, that's not going to happen. Whereas Marshall and, and uh, Sagar will take, I guess they have more hawkish writing views, by the same, I, which I do not like. But at the same time, I respect them for kind of a more concrete solutions, like little things that will move the line towards a more populist stance. Like an example I could give was they will dismiss anything that goes like, oh, what do we got rid of the filibuster in the Senate? Like that's not going to happen with a, the way the Senate is structured and gerrymandering happened, not gerrymandering the Senate, but uh, the way that, um, what, do, what do you call it? The uh, way uh, smaller states have equal representation that's at least the more disproportionate Republican influence over the Senate than right. population-wise. Like, that's they're not going to get rid of the filibuster. Like, even the neoliberal Republicans will not relinquish control. Like, they're always fighting, like, populist Republican versus... There are more populist Republicans dance versus the neoliberal Republicans, whatever that means nowadays, but... Yeah, well, that was, 
Sorry, that was let's a, get um, your opinion on it. That was a failure on the Democratic majority under Obama's administration. Um, in fact, Rokana admitted that to me, that they should have ended the filibuster back then, back when Obama had the House and the Senate, and they should have. And we wouldn't have the situation right now with Roe v. Wade. But Yes, actually, that reminds that. me. Sager <laughs> mentioned that. He mentioned that <laughs> if uh, Obama had the guts to go to Harry Reid, he would have done it. He would have, like, taken the heat that it did. The Democrats lost the Senate and went lost in a bloodbath in 2010 anyway, so he should have just went ahead with it back then. I don't know what your opinion on that strategy by Obama was like back then or now. Yeah, there's a couple of things that he could have done when he had the majority that he waited. For example, he could have codified Roe v. Wade into law when he had the majority. And when I mentioned that to Rokana, Rokana was like, we didn't have the votes. And I'm like, you had the majority. So what that told me is that some of the Democrats would have voted against it. So it just, it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting, but I hear what you're saying about coming up with solutions. I think that's important too. I know one thing Chris had just did say to me is that we should be organizing within our communities, which is something that we do over at RBN. That's, that's our heavy focus, organizing in our communities and trying to help people in the communities. And I really do like the fact that he does teach at a prison I think that's that's really good because they're not they're not being rehabilitated like they no. should be, you know. Yeah, that's a interesting topic too, a prison reform. I was wondering, uh, do you have like a stance on that? Like whether I know we should reform prisons, but to what extent should we bifurcate between violent crime and nonviolent crime? Between giving, uh, I'm all for giving nonviolent offenders like uh rights such as voting rights and a pardons or whatever it's called when you um just let people who've been in prison work uh what would your stance be on it i think that if you're going to do rehabilitation you have to rehabilitate every everyone should have that opportunity regardless of what the crime was and i think there's a, there's a country I recommend that people look at, and that's Norway. Now, I know it's a different model, and I, I totally get all that, but they actually rehabilitate the prisoners. In the United States, we basically throw, you know, criminals, we throw them into this center block cell, and we say, have at it, right? People are beaten up. People are sexually assaulted. Sometimes the guards are involved in the same violent behavior against those prisoners as well. And where is the rehabilitation for that? Are they getting counseling? Are they actually going through some type of training or courses to understand why they did the crime that they did and how to not do that again? No, they're not. From what I've heard from people, and I've talked to people who have been in prison, they have the opportunity to take like a class here and there. Uh, there's a library where they can read and stuff like that. They can get their mm -hmm. diploma if they want to do that. Okay, cool. How is that rehabilitating them though? You really have to yes. have to get them to to understand why they did what they did and why it was wrong, and to make sure that they don't repeat that behavior again. Because we don't do that. When our prisoners are released, they're more likely to become repeat offenders. There's no jobs program set up for some of these prisoners. They get out, even the people who didn't commit a violent crime. They get out, they have a federal offense, they have a record, they go apply for jobs, 
there's always that question on the application. Have you ever been convicted of a fe- So then you got to answer that question. And then most of the time, most employers are not going to hire you. So what do you do? A lot of times they end up turning right back to crime. I was, that's an interesting uh, point about Norway. It's just, I wonder what the statistics on violent crime specifically would be, because that's something I have reservations about. Well, one of the guys, one of the guys that was uh, talked to, one of the prisoners that was talked to in the documentary I saw actually murdered someone and was completely different. Like after rehabilitation, completely different. Yeah. I was wondering, um, maybe there'd be some kind of, like, we could reform it where the violent crimes would be not up to prosecutors, but up to the victim's families to, or the victim themselves, if it's not murder, to, like, have some, have sole input. What what do you think of that? To, like, whether they stay in prison or uh, serve their sentence or um, get released. I just really have deep reservations having personal experience with, uh, Friends and families who've been victims of violent crime is just something I'm just mm-hmm. on board with totally. Yeah. Um, well, you'll run into two problems with that. Number one, that's assuming that the the victim's family or the victim is still alive. So if the victim's family members are no longer alive, they won't be there to make that decision. And then two, right. it also opens the door for bias. Because if the victims, let's say their family members just happen to be racist and the criminal is of a different race that they they hate they're more likely to say no right uh yeah i can see your point maybe like a not somebody's who's like some politically appointed position but maybe actual members of communities like prominent members or something some yeah, some kind of like yeah like, yeah it's other things too like i don't think people should be in in jail for drugs i really don't oh like, I'm i don't sorry. Either. <laughs> it's just like, it's just associated with which crime like if it's involved with crime, violent crime which i'm tarping on is like if it's linked to violent crime with drugs then i do have a problem with that in general i think case by case i think i think in our country i think we need to look at why these crimes are happening and what i've noticed is that most crime is poverty driven so if you fix and this is not going to prevent all crime but if you fix the poverty situation that we have in this country, the crime rate the crime rate uh, will decrease. If you legalize all drugs in this country, the crime rate will decrease. Uh, I think it also has something to do with culture, since America and where I'm from, as you know, Canada, it's similar in like wealth dis- distribution and just wealth overall. And yet, your country is way more violent. So I'm not talking about some boomer argument about like uh, violence on TV and video games and none of that. I'm talking more about the scaremongering from the media about that. It just leads to clashes like uh, George Zimmerman, for example, or some other stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it seems to like, you guys seem to be bombarded with that kind of propaganda and much more than we are. And I think that has something to do with it, not just solely poverty. Well, um, like maybe said, America's most more of violent is, is... culture is what I'm trying to say. It is a more violent culture, but most of it can be linked back to poverty, poverty issues. Uh, that being said, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I I was born in Baltimore. I spent most of my childhood and I'd say adolescence in Germany. When I lived in Germany, 
I didn't have to have like a chaperone or anything. I was allowed to walk from like my house to the bowling alley, to the skating ring by myself or with my friend. When we moved back to the United States, I was not allowed to go anywhere at night by myself. And my parents had to explain to me, you can't do that here. In Germany, it was, I didn't have, we had no issues. We didn't have to worry about someone sneaking up behind us and trying to mug us in the middle of the night. We did not have to worry about any of those things. But coming back and then going back to the United States and particularly going back to, to Baltimore, oh, hell no. There's no way my parents would no. let me walk home out by myself. So there is a big difference. But if you look at the cities in the United States that have the highest crime rates, they also tend to have a high poverty rate. I would agree with that. Yes. Uh, it's similar in like the downtown Toronto, as I said, like the, uh, does there, except for like the bougie areas, like the gentrified areas of Toronto, it's, um, very grimy down there. Let's say, uh, there's mental health issues, substance use issues in the homeless on the streets. It's more on the suburbs too. There's a little bit of crime, but I feel safe walking where I am. It's fine. Like where I live mm. now. Whereas where whereas where I grew up, it definitely would have been different. It's the, even it depends suburb suburb, but even back at a home in Scarborough, which is a suburb of Toronto east of there, it's more uh let's just say diverse communities like uh like I mentioned, Caribbean culture, it's Chinese and uh, Filipino and it was a little dangerous, but back in the nineties I didn't feel any of that as a kid. Like I was fine, like playing soccer on a field, and I nowadays I would not. There's something's changed. I don't know what it is. I wish I could fix it, but it is what it is. That's interesting. You know why I love going to Canada, Simon? Mm, uh, the poutine. <laughs> That's part of it. <laughs> um, I love going to Canada because when I go to Canada, everyone says hi everyone's so friendly. It, it was weird to me the first time I went because like coming from Boston, like nobody says I'm here. <laughs> if people don't know you, they don't speak to you unless they're trying to ask you for the time. I but think it's just time, because you're lovely and uh, personality, I think. I think that's it. Uh, no one says hi to me that much anymore. And uh, where I grew up in Scarborough or Richmond Hill even. Although it, I, a little bit more in Richmond Hill, but yeah, I, I, I don't know it as much. People are a little... Not American levels of uh, hostility, but it seems like nowadays we don't reach out to each other. And that's one day I would encourage pragmatically to solutions just to, like we are right that's now, just connecting and being warm to each other. We need more than this world. That's a hokey solution, but I find it's very true. I agree. We could definitely use more of that. Well, Simon, thank you so much for calling in. I'm going to go to the next nice caller day. here. You have a nice day, Savvy. Thanks, you too. Okay, I'm going to bring in the next caller, and that is William. You're on the mic. Sabi, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, great. Well, hey, Sabi, I'll say hi to you. <laughs> and I'm going to say hi to you where you're, <laughs> where you're living. Um, <laughs> uh, we talked uh, last week. How, speaking of crime, how did things work out for the... Uh, the, the identity theft thing you've experienced, did that work out for you okay? It's all straight. Yes, out. it's all resolved, thank goodness. I, I caught it within 24 hours, so mm. I was able to get all my money back, which is great. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, that's good to hear. Um, that boy, that was a meaty conversation you just had, and the topic of Chris Hedges is so. That's, I, I'm a big fan of Chris Hedges. Um, for a lot of reasons. Uh, I mean, I, there's so much here. I don't even know where to start. Um, let Let me just start with you and I met, met, discussed once before the um, the Princeton Northwestern study, Gillens and um, Page. You know, the 20 year study on uh, on once once our once people get elected, does does our vote matter anymore? You know what I mean? Remember the study we were talking about? I don't know if you recall Princeton, Gillens, and uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. Martin Gillens. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, for people who are not familiar with that, uh, in brief, there was a 20-year study done by those two professors, and basically, in a nutshell, one of the articles I read, you know, is that Congress doesn't care what you think. That basically, they're beholden to their corporate masters, and that's it. You know what I mean? So, what they run on, the candidates, and what they ended up doing once they're in Congress could be completely juxtaposed. You know what I mean? Is that pretty much to summarize the study, do you think, accurately? Yeah, and for people who are not aware, basically that study was showing that um, poor people basically, poor people and um, middle-class people basically have no say when it comes to policy change in electoral politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because of course, the top 10%, or lockstep in a much larger degree than the bottom 90% with the corporate donors. You see, pretty much, I think that pretty much summarizes it. I mean, there's more to it. But. So if you keep that in mind, we don't have a representative democracy. We don't have a government of, by, and for the people. That's clearly obvious right there. Um, uh, and that's reflected if you just got to look at our the, what evolved uh, from Ross Perot, for example, we can start there, they can go back a lot further, but where Ross Perot, you know, was talking about NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, if you recall. And remember that funny words like, NAFTA, NAFTA, you you don't want that. You're going to hear a giant sucking sound. Our job's going to Mexico, then to Asia, you know? And here we are. <laughs> Didn't take long, right? We had the uh, uh, Beijing Free Trade Agreement, the uh, uh, Asian Free Trade Agreement, the Trans-Pacific Pact, and of course, there has been that great sucking sound. We've lost millions and millions of manufacturing jobs, and the the sector that would support a lot of those manufacturing jobs suffers. A perfect example is this where, city where I'm from, it's Bridgeport, Connecticut, um, which was the manufacturing hub of New England, um, especially during war times and uh there were 500 manufacturing companies in this area and uh my grandmother used to say oh if you lost your job in bridgeport anyone could walk 10 minutes to get another job now that's there's tons of opportunity there was a very low crime rate um uh, and you make a very good point obviously when when you end up with urban decay outsourcing the crime rate becomes an issue and more so and more so, the, the worse it gets, you know. And that's Bridgeport, you know, for example. Um, obviously, this is happening to a lot of cities. Uh, it has happened, I should say, to a lot of manufacturing cities and steel cities. And 
clearly the people want the jobs here. You know what I mean? If you're thinking about we're a representative democracy, nobody wants to be unemployed and and uh, 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 in a position where they they can't have the, what was once called the American dream. You know what I mean? Like um, my dad bought a house in Trumbull for like 16 grand. I, that's what they told me. I wasn't born yet, but in 1960. And uh, gosh, I'm trying to think, was it 2007? It sold for like $450,000. Now we did you know, some work and a, a porch addition and whatnot, but you know, the, the, the consumer price index does not represent the exponential explosion of housing costs. You see what I'm saying? So that's based on staple goods, the CPI, uh, which is not, that's another thing. Our government's so corrupt that, <laughs> sure, who goes to the grocery store or tries to buy anything nowadays, be it gasoline, whatever, the staple goods, and says, yeah, I agree with the CPI. That's about accurate. Oh, <laughs> does anybody? You know what I mean? What are they saying it is? I can't remember now, nine or some odd percent last I heard. And that's not what my experience is. Is it yours, Sabi? <laughs> you know I mean? No, and I can tell you too, in reference to housing costs, uh, a coworker of mine told me that his parents' house, because he still lives with his parents, he said his parents paid $30,000 for their house. And he said their income together was more than that. So I want to say that because I want people to understand how drastically things have changed. If your house is $30,000 and together you guys are making like $45,000, you're not going to have any problem paying that house off. Now it's the opposite. The houses are like 500,000, 600,000, especially here in Massachusetts. If you want to get something brand new, forget it. Like 500,000. It's hard to find a house here in Eastern Massachusetts that's under $500,000. And so nobody's making that. Most people are not making that salary-wise. That's the problem. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard it phrased that way before, but that's really, that's, I never thought of it that way, but for sure. So if you think about it, if you did the math, like, the, you know, just quickly, you might say housing costs have gone up like 3,000%. Do you know what I mean? From 30 what did, he, what did he say it was 30,000 and nowadays it's $30,000. Yeah. That's right. Because if, if you think about it and that was the situation, if that was still present today, well, yeah, then you can afford to have three kids or five kids or like, mm-hmm. I mean, my parents, my mom had four brothers and sisters. My dad had seven brothers and sisters. Mm. People aren't doing that today because they can't afford to, even if you want a big family. And I've heard friends of mine say they wanted a big family. They can't afford it. Right, right. And so, like, just thinking, where I come up with that 3,000%, people might say, well, that's a little off. But my parents bought their house for 16000 and sold for close to 480000 not quite, a little less than that. So that's a 3,000% increase. And if you factor in inflation and cost of living, there's no way, you know, the wages have kept up to that. And the housing cost for people is their biggest cost. It's not their staple yes. goods. Yes, so, that's where most of my money goes. Right. <laughs> it's right. uh, it's a lot. And then, you know, I, I, I think about like the Gen Z generation, you know, I'm starting to feel like they're going to have it worse than my generation did as a millennial because they're entering into a time where they're like graduating from college. 
some of them are going back to grad school because they're like, crap, like I can't afford to pay for rent right now. So I'm just going to go to grad school and try to prolong education until mm. things get better. By the way, for those of you listening, don't do that because you think things will get better. And then by the time you graduate from grad school, guess what? We're in another recession. And it makes it harder sometimes when you're trying to get a job because employers look at your resume and they're like, you didn't have any work experience. Well, yeah, I was in a school. Yeah, but we need you to have three to five years experience for an entry level job, which they know is ridiculous because if you're just graduating college, how do you have three to five years full time work experience for entry level job? But I want people to understand why they have that requirement now during the the 08 housing crisis. You had people who at that time could have been retiring and chose not to because we were going into a recession, right? They didn't want to, I, I hold on to my job because I don't want to lose my house. So people who were supposed to retire decided not to. Then that meant that the people who were Gen X, they were actually getting the entry level jobs that those of us graduating from college should have been getting. So by the time we graduated from college, it became the new requirement that you needed to have three to five years experience for an entry level job because those people already had that amount of experience. Yeah, wow. Um, I was just thinking as you were talking, and uh, it's almost like talking about these things and trying to put them into context to today. And also, I mean, I don't know if, what I'm trying to say. It's like such a schism because right now things are so out of the norm, such so whack, you know, where it looks like the World Economic Forum, and, uh, Forum you know, if you watch their video by 2030, uh, you will own nothing, have no privacy and be happy. You know what yep. I mean? That's literally, it's like the agenda is full steam ahead. Do you follow me? It's yep. like Mach 5. You know what I mean? And it doesn't appear like anything's going to stop it. You know, for example, right. we look at this war in Ukraine. Well, keep in mind the 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 um, young global leaders and and global influencers. Putin was well, let's let's back up a bit. World Economic Forum was started in the early seventies. I don't remember it was seventy two or seventy four. Klaus Schwab, but that was just an extension of the Bilderberg Group, right? You follow me? They put a face on it. Now, Bilderberg secret meeting still, World Economic Forum, oh, yep. we got a face now, Dr. Evil, you know what I mean? And his psychic now, Yuval Harari, just like the movie, Dr. Evil, you know, you can't, it's like they even pick characters that portray, you know, the evil that they're, they're this is not about, you know, these are the same people that got us into this disaster to begin with. Do you follow me? They're not meeting these NGOs and these people to save humanity. That, that's nonsense. They, they're the ones who drove us to this point. Do you follow me? And so that's my opinion, okay? Regardless of whatever nonsense that they put out on the WF site. And, you know, they talk about penet with Klaus Schwab, penetrating world uh, governments, do you follow me? Pretty much is what, he, what he's saying. So if you think they have, I can't remember how many world, uh, global leaders they've graduated, but Putin was one of the first ones. And then they have their global influencers. So you know, those they've picked up who are in and out in the world. Uh, we're talking, you know, uh, people from BlackRock, uh, Vanguard, State Street, you know, for example, or major corporations and government leaders and whatnot. They're not elected. 
I'm sorry, you guys are meeting to decide the future of the world, you know what I mean, and how it's going to go. We do not have a democracy. We, we have, as you say, an oligarchy, and there's the face of it, in my opinion. Do you follow me? That's the public face of it. So, so when we start talking about politics and relating to life the way we're used to from frames of references like, you know, well, you know, like you and I would think about, I'm 62 and I'm like, well, geez, you know, this is how much things cost then. And, and, and uh, here's what's been changing. And of course, trickled on economics, never trickled anywhere. It was voodoo economics, just like George Bush once said when he ran against Reagan. Do you follow me? In other words, the, the wealth transfer just continues to go in that direction. The estimates I read before, before this pandemic, and I say that word intentionally, that's, I don't have a stutter or, or, you know, I call it a pandemic and I can give you all kinds of reasons for that, but that would take, we have other callers. Point I'm trying to make is the $50 trillion wealth transfer upwards prior to this mess we've, that they've brought upon us recently and mismanagement that caused more lockdowns, uh, you know, uh, 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 shipping and supply chain problems and more inflation. And then right on the heels of that, we had the Ukraine war. Now, yep. if you think of the Ukraine war, if you, if you look and you study Biden 1997, talking about NATO expansion as a Senator, him, and William Burns, who was, uh, when he was, uh, not now William Burns is head of the CIA, but he was the ambassador of Russia at one time. And when he was ambassador to Russia, he talked, he wrote a report, yet, yet, which means, no, no, when Putin was saying, and Russia was saying, no more expansion, because it was going to bring a hot war. And Biden was talking about that in 97, that it was going to bring conflict. They all knew this was going to happen. I mean, think how many years ago that was. Do you follow me? And so this is not something that they didn't see coming. They, it, it's like it's part of the plan. I don't see how you can see it otherwise. We, 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 how many biolabs did we have in Russia? I've heard up to over 30-odd. Do you follow me? And why were we sponsoring those biolabs in Russia? And why we are, I'm sorry, I said Russia. I meant to say Ukraine. Okay, I'm sorry, a little upset, a little lost in my head there. Ukraine, we got all these biolabs, okay? And then there's Burisma and Biden, and it's like, and then there's the C-14 and the Azov Battalion. They're like, what, why in the hell are we backing those, the, this situation when the Minsk Accords have been ignored, was ignored for eight years, do you follow me? That was supposed to bring peace in the Ukraine, okay? And we, we, we sponsored the overthrow of that government that that led to the the, the, the instability. Do you follow me in Ukraine? And uh, who was help me out? I'm drawing a blank here. I, sometimes I get a little upset. I get sappy. Who was who was the woman? Uh, they were talking about who was going to be the new leader of Ukraine, and she was American diplomat, and and she was pretty much naming who it was going to be. Gloria, who was that? She she was in a congressional. I know, I know who you're talking about, but I forget her name. Noonan? Was it Noonan? I think. I'm trying to remember. You know what I mean? Oh, oh uh, Victoria? Was it her? Um, I, yeah. I think I, it was Victoria. Victoria Newland. Newland. You got it. Thank you for helping me with that. Okay. This, so, you know, it's funny. You, know, you look at out the world and there's so much to absorb. 
You know what I mean? There's so much to try and comprehend and make sense of. It's an overload. You know what I mean? And it seems mm -hmm. like part of the agenda is to keep us in survival mode like that. We're, 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 I know I'm diverging, but but I'm sure a lot of your listeners can pick up where I you know, left. You got a lot of callers, and I see that. So I just, I, I'm going to reel okay. it back, you know, because I can really get, get going. <laughs> but I, I want to touch on one more thing real quick. Think about the true criminals in this country. I'm talking the big rollers, right? The big heavy criminals. Who are they? Remember, the banksters, too big to fail, right? You know, mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about, right? The Wall Street, the wolves on Wall Street, too big to fail, really? And they retired with bonuses. Well, they foreclosed on elderly people, disabled, you know, disadvantaged, your multi-generational homes. Forget about it. You lost that. So many people got hurt. The real big white-collar criminals, the banksters, okay? Also, you talk about a crime syndicate, and people may get upset with me, but the bottom line is you want to talk about a major crime syndicate that's not held uh, to the fire and to, to the uh, international courts? Pick a church, like the Mormon church, the Catholic church, okay? That's for real. Your movie Spotlight, and that's the yep. tip of the iceberg, okay? That was right so, here in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. Then I used to work for a company that did federal Superfund sites. Let's talk about, you know, oh, the, the movie Aaron Brockovich. Yeah, sure, they got settlements mm -hmm. and it kind of had a romantic ending. But if you think about the suffering, the lives lost, and, you know, I don't care how much money you give me if I lost my wife due to cancer and saw her suffer, there's no money to heal that. And all of that, federal Superfund, let me tell you something, it was a pump and dump procedure. And what that meant was, and this happened, do you want to talk about another one, is the movie Civil Action in Massachusetts, Wahlberg, where he had the similar yep. situation, right? And that's John Travolta and Robert Duvall in that movie. If we had a representative democracy and we had an EPA that was functional and we, if we had uh, uh, representatives that were responding to the true needs of the people, none of that could have been nipped in the bud years and years ago. 80% of the EPA budget is spent fighting lawsuits, not cleaning up. I've worked on federal Superfund sites as a lead operator, and I will tell you, it is very, very, boy, wow. I, even in Massachusetts, I work. I've worked in California, in Fort Ord, Camp Pendleton. I've worked in Massachusetts. I've worked in Connecticut. And because I'm from both those areas, they would send me either way knowing, you know, I had family back here or whatever. It was so environmental. But but the finally I asked yeah. some, some the version. I said to my boss one day, get me out of here. I cannot sit on a tractor for 12 hours and idle it for 10 or, or depending on the day we're putting it in and work only for two. I'm not going to do it anymore. It's not right. Uh, give me to a T&M job. Right. So then you go from making prevailing wage to making you know, a fraction of it. No per diem in a hotel. You're commuting. But you know what? At least I was doing on the stage work. T&M jobs, you know, the contract is written where they got to get the work done. But you're talking federal super fund. Holy crap. I, I, I know mm -hmm. you got other callers, but we'll talk another time because we've had a representative democracy. None of this would have happened. None of the things we're talking about would be happening. We wouldn't have been in a situation where jobs were in now in China, India, Mexico, where they don't have the labor laws, the environmental laws, where people are working slave labor. And, you know, and that's a fact. 
You follow me? I mean, the Foxconn yeah. factory, where those phones were made for um, Apple or whoever, Foxconn factory, they put up suicide nuts because the girls were jumping off. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know if you heard about that. That was... Yeah. That's yep. what, the democracy? What the hell? How was it even legal for our companies to be using that type of labor pool and abusing it? And these are human beings. You follow what I mean? And then, the, the, and then you look at Xi, Xi Jinping, when I pronounce his name properly, and he's at the World Economic Forum, uh, lauded as some kind of great leader in 2017, 2021, 2022. Trump speaks in 2020. And they're all in lockstep. People say WF represents you know, the Western powers. Oh, no. There's no difference there. That's This is... This whole BRICS yeah. thing and the war, in my opinion, is is part of the agenda, okay? However people feel about it, it's part of the agenda to push the economic crisis upon us, the control that they will have, driving inflation, sh screwing the supply chain, and and bringing their 2030 agenda on, and then, and, uh, uh, you know, they got a fire behind it and and driving that they're going to stick it right up or you know what's and this is where we're going to forget about the american dream like george carlin said you got to be asleep to believe it amen <laughs> good points william uh, thank you so much for calling in i'm going to bring in uh the next caller which is red thank you bye okay red you're on the mic just have to unmute hey yo what's the word Oh, man. <laughs> how are you doing, Savvy? And how are all the Savvy Nators doing on this lovely evening or night or wherever it is? Time <laughs> of the day it is where you're at. Doing great, Red. What What's your take on all of this? Oh, my God. Sad, wait. I got to. Oh, sad, wait. I didn't get a chance to listen to the, uh, to the uh, Chris Hedges one. So I'm kind of off. I'm actually was going to uh, call you because I had just finished listening to your interview that you actually did with the uh, African socialist. Oh, the that yeah. Got yep. Okay. I'm like six days. I'm like six days straight on like 12 hour day work shift. So forgive me if I'm like off a little bit. But no, I was like, but no, I was kind of just thinking that shit is messed up because we was because my girlfriend was actually my girlfriend is actually doing a paper for a report and she was talking with me about something that like relayed a lot close to home to me. I'm not so I'm not sure if you're familiar with like Chicago or like gang culture, but do you know who Jeff Ford is? I don't. Okay, Jeff Ford is like a. Old big time gang leader. He started the uh, Blackstone Rangers, which is now known as the uh, Black Peacestone Nation or BPSN here today. And it was kind of like an off branch of like the uh, of the uh, Black Panthers. And ironically enough, my grandmother used to be a member of the uh, Black Panther in the Chicago division, like way back in the day. And when she was at, when we was talking about it, when she, we was talking about uh, with like Jeff Ford and everything. He took the gang into like an interesting like direction. He was trying to make it like a uh, piggyback off of the uh, Black Panther Nation, but that's when they started like starting to dismantle it. So then like the 
brothers that like got branched off, they branched off and started off games. Kind of the same way like how they did out in L.A. with the Crips and the Bloods. So this was kind of that thing that happened here in Chicago. So when he was started, when he start, when he did start the gang, it was starting up his community activism, and he was getting like a lot of government money for like job training programs and all of that stuff. And then it was, but then some, you know how white, you know like how the white liberals are probably get like they probably seeing this guy getting like federal money and is like actually uplifting the community and making things better. And it was like some racial conflict from like the black residents in like the west side and south side of Chicago versus like some of the European immigrants that moved here and they didn't like the fact that black people were actually starting to get like a leg up. So they like charged him with like fraud they charged him with like fraud for uh, federal funds and like locked him up and then like he went he went into prison, he became a he became a Muslim and was actually doing like connect was like doing communication was talking with like uh Gaddafi and uh what that country was Libya and they like charged him with like terror they like charged him with like ter- they like charged him with like terrorism and like locked him up and he's like serving like a whole bunch of like I think he got like a five time life sentence in like a maximum prison in like Colorado with like no contact with like no others and I'm just it's just crazy like how you go from that to where what happened to the African socialists and that raid, and it was just kind of like, I'm not trying to be like all doomsday and gloom and whatever, but I have to say I'm pretty happy that it's like a miracle that they like even walked out of that situation like scathed and alive. Yep. Because I told my grandmother about that shit. She was just like, they asked to be dead. They got something. She's just like, I don't know why government's kind of gotten soft or what, but she was like, they should be dead. Yeah, they were held at gunpoint for people who haven't, if you haven't seen that interview um, I did last night, definitely check that out on uh, YouTube because they were held at gunpoint. They treated them like they were terrorists. Right. I mean, that was nuts. I think he even said he thought this was going to end up, he thought this was going to end up like how they did Fred Hampton, right? Yep. And then they was like, then they zipped out and everything. That shit was fucked up. After watching yeah. that episode, I, I ain't gonna lie, that shit kind of got me heated. I almost was just like, man, I gotta stop working because <laughs> I, I, I haven't even called in on a minute because I've been kind of like on a poli- on like a politics break. All this with all that student loan shit and all just all the craziness that comes from that. It's kind of like it's a real hot mess on the left right now because I sat back and watched a lot of that, and there's really a lot more fighting on the left about how we should feel about the student debt shit than I'm even hearing like the typical talking points from the right about it but yeah the the whole student loan situation is look i know people that are never going to be able to pay off their student loans just because again like we don't have we did not raise wages the way that we should have in this country professor wolf said the minimum wage today if you adjust for inflation, the years of inflation, the minimum wage today should be $35 an hour. I believe that was what he told me. So most people I know don't even make $35 an hour. So we're way behind. We're way behind. Yeah, we're way behind. And it's just, I mean, there's, there's so many, there's so many like, and I mean, my take with it was like, I was seeing all the stuff, and it was just like, 
certain leftists would get mad, even at me, when it was just like, I mean, I'm not about to sit around and be happy about it, because one, I, I gotta be honest with y'all, I don't have student debt, so I don't really, so I don't really, like, take this issue to, like, a personal heart, I know people who that shit has affected, and I mean, it's, I don't know, I used to feel bad at first, like, when I, when I got out of high school, when I, when I was actually in high school, um, I remember them uh, college recruits used to come up to the school and shit and just used to sell us a drink. Like, yeah, you're going to come here and you're going to network yeah. and make all your friends <laughs> here. Da, 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 da. You're going to you're gonna learn all this. You're going to get this higher education, the real higher education. You're going to learn the real stuff. Gonna, then once you get that degree, you're going to get the job. You're going to get the dream house. You're going to get the family. You're going to get Life is just going to be set and made for you. And I'm like, all right, cool. How much is this going to cost? And then why never seem can answer that question. Why ever never want to seem to really answer the truth behind that question? And I used to, I remember, like, when everybody, while everybody else was, like, while all my friends and everybody was probably, like, filling out college applications and whatever, unfortunately, like, my my broke ass, it was like, nope, I'm lining up my shifts for, like, getting ready for work. And was, at the time, I was, like, acting because I was, like, in a drama club. Where I, was, and I was, like, either getting my shifts ready for work or trying to line up auditions because I knew I couldn't afford to go to college. And, like, one thing that was, like, teeing me off was that, like, a lot of people need to understand, like, with college debt is that everybody don't have, like, parents that's going to, like, start off paying those loans off for you while you're in school. I knew my parents said That's they right. My parents said they weren't. So, if I would have, because I was going to go to uh, Chicago, Columbia College, or, like, the Arsenal, if I would have went, I would have had to start taking that debt head on, like, I would have took that debt on head on, like, the moment I would have signed on the dotted line saying I'm enrolled. And a lot of my friends that i seen that went that route, they didn't even finish college. So they got this, so they had this debt, like, unnecessarily. So they yes. had this debt with no degree to back it up with it. And it's just, like, there's no way to make, like, a fucking living out here. And it's, like, even with, like, how I got to do Uber right now just to, like, get a 100% coverage of tuition, they're going to keep a lot of these systematic institutions to, like, keep us in line to be like, well, okay, there are ways you can go to college, but yeah, you got to join the military and put your fucking life on the line. Right. Or like, oh, you got to stay at this job and you got to you got to stay at this job and you got to stay for a certain amount of time, then you do it, and then after you do it, you got to commit to stay for another certain amount of time just so we can feel we can get our money's worth out of you before you can quit. So it's like by the time you can get to quit out, you already been like using the views out through like this through like this worker system. Right. And to that point, like I know people that had to drop. I don't know what it is about freshman year, but put it this way. There were people that I knew my freshman year. And when I came back sophomore year, they did not return. Some people had to drop out of college. I knew one person in particular had to drop out because she had to actually go back to her parents house and get a job to help her parents pay the bills. This is the reality of people who are coming from like these working class or like poor neighborhoods. Sometimes they're helping out the parents. When I was in high school, my best friend, one of my best friends, I just thought she had a part-time job just like the rest of us because we wanted to kind of make our own money, right? I didn't find out till years later that she had to work because her mom stopped going to work. So she had to she had to have a job after school to help pay the bills. This is a reality here in this country where sometimes the kids who are like teenagers, they have to work to help their parents pay the bills. 
not just so that they can have extra money on their own and go out you know, bowling or to the movies and stuff like that with their friends. Sometimes they have to help their parents. And I think this is why I keep telling people, people need to get out of their, their, if you're wealthy, you need to get out of your class bubble and you really need to get to know people who are working class and people who are poor, not as a project. Don't make them your pet that you can go back home to your wealthy neighborhood and brag to your friends about, oh, I went to the hood and I met this person. But you need to get to know people like that so you can understand how people are struggling in this country. Because I always felt like no teenager should have to work. If they want to, I think that's great. But when it's getting to the point where they have to work to help the parents pay the bills, that's when you know we have a failed system in this country. And yeah, I mean, I can't tell you, like, like I said, I did feel, I felt bad that I wasn't going to college. I felt like I was being left behind. I promise that shit was, like, only short-lived for, like, maybe a year or two tops. Like, I remember, like, two years until, like, when people was going to college and whatever. Like, all my friends moved out. They got their own apartments and stuff. And, you know, I was always, like, a supportive friend. So, and being that supportive friend, when you're, cel- when you, when you're on top and you celebrate, I'm cheering you on. But when you're down and you got to make some, you got to make some sad phone calls, some shame phone calls, to be like, hey, look, I got to move my shit back into my parents' apartment. I got to move my shit back to my parents' house. Can you help me with it? I was all, I was always getting those calls, and that shit just made it like, damn, this shit's doing that to y'all? Yeah, kind of glad I didn't do this shit. Mm-hmm. And but, what people don't understand, too, was like, I went to college in, excuse me, high school in North Carolina. At that point in time, you only had a couple of options. You could join the military, which a lot of people do down south, you could go to college, or if you decided not to do those two, it was kind of hard to find a job that was going to pay your rent. And I say rent because that was the highest cost, right? So that's why a lot of us ended up going to college, because what were we going to do? Like, we couldn't pay our rent like just working retail. We couldn't pay our rent just waiting tables. We couldn't pay our rent just having like an office job that was paying like $5 an hour. That's the problem. So that's why, like, we were pushed to go to college by our guidance counselors because they were telling us, like, the only way you're going to be able to make an income where you can you can live a life where you will not have to struggle, you're going to have to go to college because those jobs require a college degree. And then a lot of us did that. And then look at what happened. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just like you still see kind of like a lot of the effects of that today because a lot of these people are supposed a lot of people in like millennial on up went to college but this country you can kind of like look around and see it hasn't really like progressed in any way shape or like in any way shape or form at all and it's like you don't believe it shit look at jackson mississippi like look at the whole shit that's going down in jackson mississippi it's just like every it's just like every other year some other town's water is becoming like contaminated and poisoned to the point where it's like undrinkable it's this uh this system is just crazy and i'm like when i watched when i watched the i think the previous i think it was the day before with your uh interview but i saw the one where you was talking with not the one where you were talking where you were talking about uh professor wolf video about uh communism actually like Funny enough, towards the end of my high school year, I wanted to read the Communist Manifesto, but everybody told me to, like, stay away from it. It was just like, you don't want to read that. It's just like, 
that's like third world country stuff. It's gonna set you, it's gonna set you back and rot your brain and all of that shit. And I was just like, mm, all right, I guess. But now looking around at like all of this shit, it's just like, fuck it, read it. Why yeah. not? I'm gonna read it like officially right now as the police is riding behind me right now. As I'm saying that shit to pull over to this That's that's right. Hey, we don't know how much longer it will be available. They're already trying to ban books again. So. Take advantage of that while you can, guys. If you have not read Communist Manifesto, please take advantage of that while you can. So true. One last thing before I get off. Uh, I remember, in regards to the last episode I was talking about, too, I was seeing you talking about, like, co-ops were, like, co-ops should be more pushed rather than, like, unions. Um, yes. I'm actually, for, like, a small, for, like, where I'm at, there's, like, very few small in-between co-ops. I totally agree with that. I would just be curious as to like what kind of strategies would be to like what what kind of strategies would you take into like organizing like something like that because I kind of saw something where somebody was saying something where along the line for small businesses instead of like how they do baby showers they should do like a business shower like if somebody opened up a new business you buy you buy like supplies and you buy supplies and bring them to them on their opening day anything they feel like they're gonna need and then you either. And then not only do you buy like brand supplies, brand with gifts, but you also like purchase and buy a, like a service, or you they sell in a product, you buy a product and stuff like that. That was kind of like one way that I was like trying to start like a because me and my friends started like a networking business over where we uh, link up and try to like put on like a lot of small businesses to the community. But I was curious like if there's any way that you would think like is that something that could possibly be integrated into forming like more co-ops especially like in more desolated communities yes and there's a couple of people i'm gonna try to bring on uh johnny alcom actually he's been on rbm before he actually started a worker co-op uh and it's a it's a startup that he started but it's a worker co-op let me see if i can get him to come on to talk about that like how he started it um so there's a couple people i do know that have started worker co-ops. And I don't know if everyone realizes this, but even Rockfin is is a worker co-op. That's why Rockfin doesn't have as many, they don't want to get too big. That's why you have to apply to join Rockfin, to be a creator on Rockfin. And they and then they don't approve everybody, but that's actually a worker co-op. Um, but Professor Wolf, his channel called Democracy at Work, there is actually, a, I think it's a playlist section on there where it's just mainly about worker co-ops. And so he explains this a little bit deeper. Um, but I'm going to see if I can do that, if I can do a panel with people who are who have actually started their own worker co-ops, because I think that'll be educational for a lot of people. Yeah, that'll be dope. I'm really, yeah, that'll be dope. I would like to pick on pick pick some of their brains and pick on ideas and see like, okay, what can we use to possibly like organize in this way to help kick some of these businesses off? Because everybody like around me, a lot of people got like business ideas, and it's just like I know just linking everybody up with great ideas together is a good start, but it's kind of like more. That's kind of why we started like that's kind of why we're starting to think about the whole business shower thing, but. It's just probably this this way more that I'm kind of like trying to like figure out on like how to organize because like you said at this rate I, for like the left as far as like on the 
federal politics stuff. That shit can give me a damn headache. <laughs> so it's just like I'm trying to yeah. figure out how to like, what can we do locally just to, just to get us up and functioning, on to the next day. You know. That's right. That's right. So yeah, definitely look forward to that uh, panel, and I'll make sure I heavily advertise that. I also want to do one to explain to people how to do mutual aid too. I want to see if I can do that with Rome. Um, because, you know, Rome does tour for the poor. So I, I think it's important to explain to everybody how to do these things, because the more people that we have doing this, like in their area, the better off people are going to be. I just want to I really want to show people that you really need to stop relying on the government to come in and save you because they're just not. And I think they've shown us this over the years. Right. Like we have to help each other. But Red, thank you so much for uh, calling in. I'm going to go to the next caller. All right, no problem. Take care. Keep up the fight. All right. Let's bring in Dave. You are on the mic. You just have to unmute, Dave. Hello there. Hello. Hello, fellow movement person. Can you hear me, Savvy? I can hear you. Hi, good to be good to be talking to a fellow movement person. Uh, yeah, I'm really worried about democracy, Abby. <laughs> really worried. <laughs> we we don't have it. I mean, we don't have anything close to it. When anytime, any almost everyone I talk to that comes up, you know, I pitch it different. I, I say it different ways to, to different people. So to try to figure out a good way of saying it to each person, but. I think everyone knows we don't have anything close to democracy right now. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. And I, I gave a couple of examples, like we don't have ranked choice voting, right? We yeah. we don't even really have a say over the policies. Like we should, because the politicians are, they're supposed to be public service. So we should have a say over the policies, but we really don't the way that we should. And then also you have third party and independent candidates that have to go through a lot more hassle to get on the ballot only to then be kicked off the ballot after meeting all the requirements by the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. And I brought on two people that that has happened to. One has been kicked off by the Republican Party. One has been kicked off by the Democratic Party. So we don't have a true democracy. So when you hear these talking points from Joe Biden, from AOC, Pramila Jayapal, all of them are saying we got to save and protect our democracy. Protect what? We don't we don't even have one. We don't have a true democracy. So they don't even let us vote for who we really want to vote for. If if this was the case, like everybody who is running would have a chance to debate. The fact that third party and independent candidates can't even get on the debate stage it's ridiculous. And for people who don't know, that's actually how Jesse Ventura was able to win. He went to the debates. Mm. So mm. that can be a game changer for a lot of people. Yeah, Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus Christ. It's it's, it's not good out there. I mean, I, I heard in the uh, 2020 elections that, uh, that also the Green Party was, um, oh, full disclosure, when, when I was first getting involved, when I first became radicalized, when I was young, like I got involved with, I, I wasn't just involved with the Green Party, but I got involved with the Green Party in 2000 and worked on the Nader campaign that year. So I wound up meeting some of the Green Party people in Boston 
at that time. But then I kind of went, I went in a more late, you know, I sort of, then through work, I got involved with labor unions. But but I heard that uh, in the 2020 campaign that the Green Party was removed illegally from the ballot in like in Ohio, Texas, and Pennsylvania. The, the high level candidates they had were like that they were pretty much moved from the ballot before the, I, I heard that, I don't know if that's true, but I heard that. I've heard about that as well. Um, you know, there are, that, there are also yeah. lawsuits. Yeah, there's also lawsuits too. I mean, Matthew Ho had a law, one, one, one of his lawsuits. Um, Larry Sharp is yeah. actually going to court tomorrow to deal with his lawsuit. Like, this is absolutely ridiculous. And I think the plan is just to tie people up in court so they have to spend money on that so that they're not focused on the race and, and, and focused on having a, a chance to win. Matthew Ho actually stands a good chance of winning. I don't think a lot of people yeah, realize that. I like that guy. That guy is, has a really strong character. I think he can, and he's very smart. I think, I hope he uh, does some damage in North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because I think, you know, there's this, I think, well, maybe they do realize, maybe mainstream media does realize that there's a lot of um, independence, right? So there's a lot of yeah. independents in this country who are just like, look, I'm not team blue or team red. And I, know, yeah, I think they, they know. I think, they're shitting, I think mainstream media is really isolated right now. I mean, they know that like people like, you know, sort of the, the beautiful people of our generation. No, I'm a little older than you, but of our generation, roughly, are the 30s and 40s are. They're not not reading. They're not looking at the mainstream. They're not like reading the uh, the legacy news. Like they find it like a joke, and they're and they're moving towards like getting their news from people like you and Jimmy um, instead of the mainstream media. Like especially like. You know, especially people that, you know, have something, you know, between their ears. Like, it's, kind of, it's definitely a, uh, uh, you know, it's a, I think they're shitting bricks right now. I think they are. I think, like, the NBCs and the CNNs and, like, the Boston Globes are, like, I think they're really afraid. I think they're losing ad advertising revenue big time yeah. right now. Yeah. Yeah, the numbers aren't good. The numbers really aren't good. You know, Trump really helped them in reference to ratings. And since Biden won, like, it's just tank. Also, not to be, like, mean, mainstream media is boring as fuck. Like, the, like I, said back in, I don't know how case study, I don't know how case study QB does it. He has to watch this stuff all the time and then clip it yeah. and then put it on Twitter I don't know how he sits there and listens through all this all the time because I'm like, I, I can't yeah. sit here for more than 15 minutes and watch like MSNBC or CNN. I'm like, you guys are so boring. I get so angry. I get I get so angry with. I mean, they're so. Yes, you're right. It's like it's like uh, watching the grass grow or watching paint dry or, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Well, Dave, thank I, you. You know, I used to get used to. We used to try to get we used to try to get quoted in the Globe, like when we were doing, you know, any unionizing drives and protests. And I've been to many, many, many protests in the Boston area, but now I, I almost don't want to be quoted in the Globe. You know, um, I don't think it's a good venue <laughs> to be quoted. 
yeah. Well, Dave, thank you so much for calling in. I'm going to go to the next caller, which is uh, Watson. Yeah, thanks for taking it. Okay, Watson, you're the next caller. Just have to unmute. Just got to hit the unmute button. Where is it now? Did they move it again? Here we go. Okay. Am I here? Yeah. I always get booted out. I got booted out last time. Right when you unmute me, it just kicks me out. This app is horrible. Um, but um, thanks uh, for taking. Um, so we can talk about the um, Chris Hedges. I was just going to uh, throw in some things. You know, he uh, quotes someone. Um, I didn't read his article. I, re I like to read the people that he points to so one of them is uh sheldon wallen so he's got a book called uh democracy incorporated which is he calls uh with uh, subtitles inverted totalitarianism so um <clears throat> he's always quoting uh sheldon wallen points to him says this is kind of uh kind of the uh a really strong way or demonstration of how democracy can be exploited um, and so, and by the way, like Sheldon Wollen, I believe he was the advisor for um, Cornell West for his PhD thesis. But um, so yeah, just some of the uh, like highlights of the book. I did a um, a book review on this on uh, Austin Software uh, Cooperatives, uh, and I can talk about cooperatives too. I, I started uh, founded a cooperative like nine years ago. Uh, so I can talk about that if you all want. Um, but over there, I try to um, talk about anything that has to do with exploitation and also cooperatives, and then uh, in the like the juxtaposition of that and and uh, software. But so one of the counterintuitive things about uh, the view, Sheldon Wallen's view, and really Chris Hedges' view, when he says like we don't have a democracy. Um, is that uh, democracy is not mutually exclusive with totalitarianism. And so that could be shocking, counterintuitive. Um, but why, is he, why does he say that? So totalitarianism, what is it? It's a systemic whole, everyone, everything supports the regime, everything is controlled from the top, top-down control. And it's your private and public life meshed together. So how can that be not, uh, uh, how is that not mutually exclusive? Well. He goes ahead and says there's totalitarianism and there's inverted totalitarianism. Uh, totalitarianism, you may know of as, you know, your regular examples of like Stalin, Nazis, Mussolini, and again, it's top down. And then getting into the, the, um, the, the democratic side. So how it's linked. So with all of these, like, well, really like with the Nazis, you'll hear Pitsedge always talk about VMR and all this stuff. Um, they had a democracy, and when the democracy is weak and it fails, it turns into totalitarianism. But when the democracy is strong and it fails, it turns into inverted totalitarianism. And so, you know, again, so what is this inverted totalitarianism? You get more legitimacy, the key word being legitimacy, from a fake democracy than you do from a true totalitarian regime that where no one votes. 
so you can do more evil things. You can have more control. You can, and the book is pretty big, but you can use, for instance, things like the Constitution. You use that as legitimacy to expand your power. So you always look legitimate and you can exploit you know, South American countries, do all this stuff, what he calls expansionary power. Um, so if you kind of want to read or figure out where the reasoning, rationale, Chris Hedges, I would say, that would be the um, to book the book to go to. And again, I uploaded a video of, uh, of that on the Austin Software Cooperatives uh, channel, so review. Um, so yeah, I was going to put that out there and uh, someone else was talking about like reading the um, Communist Manifesto. I, I, you can read Richard Wolff. He's got an updated mm -hmm. version of Marxism. So when, when somebody um, talks about, say, when, when people want to read about if they're going to be hard on capitalism, uh, you can go read, you know, some of the, um, like the wealth of nations and all the stuff that are written. But, you know, these people don't, what we do now is not that. Like, no, we do something way more exploitative, neoliberalism, and then all this stuff. So people within, it's interesting because on the capital side, um, people have accepted that things can evolve and they have their ways of, ra you know, rationalizing what they do. But on the Marx side, people always go back to Marx. It's like things have evolved. You can talk completely, right. yeah, with with Wolf, he talks about, like, when you say stuff like the surplus, he really gets things really simplified. And just like mm -hmm. the phrase, democracy at work. Why are we talking? You don't have to say anything but just that. You have democracy at the workplace. There you he go. He breaks it. You can tell that he's uh, <laughs> a professor, that he's actually, uh, and I say, well, I shouldn't say just professor, but you can tell he actually teaches because not all professors teach. Mm -hmm. Um, you can tell he actually teaches because when he explains things, he breaks it down so that everybody can understand it. He doesn't mm -hmm. use, let me try to use these fancy, large, you know, words to impress people. No, let me break this down so that people, anybody can take this and understand it. So I like that he does that. Yeah, he is the man. Uh, I, I'm, I'm almost like. He wants people to understand what he's saying, even to me, beyond what a professor is like. He, it, yeah. it, he, he's really, it's almost like a family member or somebody, like that's how he explains things to me. Uh, you know, so I definitely, you know, when you're talking about what's exploitation, simple word, you ask somebody what's exploitation on the street or really on the left or right, you, it's like, well, what is it? Explain it. Well, somebody's, what is it? Somebody's stealing something or whatever. No, it's like, okay, it's very simple. You got 10 people, you, you know, let's say you, you say you got 10 people, five, 10 people, you're making chairs. Okay. You're making chairs and, you know, you, you chop the wood all together yourself. You made these chairs. Now you go on to the market. The 10 of you, you, you made 20 chairs. All right. You sold 15 chairs. Okay. There's five left. If those 10 people that helped make those chairs, you got together and made them, if those 10 people have no say in where those five chairs go, it's called the surplus or the extra, that's exploitation. Yep. You have extra, that's it. That's all it is, right? If someone else tricked you into saying, you know, I know you made those chairs, but I'm better at 
knowing what to do with them. Let, I, I, I control that. I own that, by the way. You know, then, you know, it's it's kind of easy to see that, well, how you how your your view, your ideological view, you could be. I would probably say most Americans are this way. You might. Oh, that's your own fault because you're too dumb. You you let them have the chairs. That's your fault. You know, mm. I don't know how to. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. It's a bizarre thing. We're in a position where the word that we need to use to say this is wrong, you should do worker cooperatives, you should have control of surplus, all this stuff. It's, you have to show people that what what's happening to you is expectation and they'll fight you on it. You know, I'm that's right. I'm, yeah, I, I, this is my this is what I've been doing for, you know, uh, you know, what, seven years or so just having a meetup group and telling people and I just get in debates, you know, and I'm in Austin, Texas, and I'm just getting in debates all the time with, uh, you know, and I'm in software. So it's a, it's interesting. And I, one of the reasons my motivations is there's really no excuse. If you start some type of professional services company in software, you have no reason to not be a cooperative zero. It is very that easy. You that's don't need exactly loans. What, um, yeah, that's <laughs> exactly that's exactly what. Um, oh, I gotta. I, I I do need to reach out to him. That's what that's mm. what my friend was saying because he did the same thing. He it's a software. It was a startup, uh, tech mm -hmm. business, and mm -hmm. it's a worker co-op. And that's what he was saying. Yeah. There's there's no excuse to not. So I, I really do. This is something I'm going to be doing a little bit different, guys. I've covered a lot of union. Um, celebrations that have happened over the past mm -hmm. year and a half. But I think I'm going to start shifting my focus to focus more on worker co-ops because what the unions are asking for, like I told you the other day, this is basically things that we should already have anyway. Right, right. And here, um, I don't know if you've ever did a book review on Jane McAlevey. Um, really, really great. She, I, I don't know if you've interviewed her, but she'd be a really good person. Um, she writes about unions, really awesome organizer. She's been making, she's made the rounds on these interviews on some of these shows. Um, but she just talks about organizing and then unions. And that, to me, there's, I don't know why unions and cooperatives don't have more, and I'm trying to research this, don't have more of a, um, more cooperation between the two. It seems on the union side, there's some kind of weird, um, I think, and I don't know, but I think oftentimes um, unions will look at any entity that's on the outside of the business as, oh, they're, they can be easily used to as a negotiation technique against the employees in the business. So everything outside of the entity can be looked at as a problem some way of the employer like the hierarchy as leverage um and for and so i think we have to figure out a way to stop that like we have to figure out a way to say we you know cooperatives or some type of outside professional services or whatever isn't used in that way and the whole the whole game the whole goal is reducing precariousness people shouldn't be worried about losing their job if they do lose their job they go to another one that kind of thing Within my field, it's pretty. You could there's people who are precarious, right, right on the borderline. There's people who can be, and then there's people who are not. Like you're not worried about job. Like for me, I mean, I've been programming for 30 years. I'm not precarious. Like I don't have to worry about a lot of that. But 
there are other people who maybe they didn't make right decisions, whatever. So a lot of people riding on borderline, it seems like instead of well, a lot of people are, you know, they're self-interested. They don't really care about these things. But oftentimes on the other side, they're saying, oh, well, we should do something to help people. Well, I think cooperatives and union support somehow, uh, that's the way to do it. Um, I, I'm not a big, going back to bring it back to the democracy side, uh, I'm not a big on the electoral side. Um, I I don't even know if that's third place on my list of priorities. I, I just don't see a, um, I don't see it. I think it's too, like Sheldon Wollen, it's, there's a whole chapter on how electoral politics is completely manipulated and easily manipulated. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I have a big mind map on, on all of the stuff. I mean, going to start boring people, but it's very, very easily manipulated. And he's really good and meticulous on um, the stages of, of electoral politics on, like, for instance, um, polling. Polling was originally designed really to just uh, divide people, right? It's all, it's demagoguery. So you try to get people to vote and look at their differences instead of the opposite side, going back to like a Jane McAlevey with the unions or organizing. You get, if you were to go to workers and say, what are your top three priorities? And then go to the next one. What are your top three priorities for professional? What are your top three priorities? You're going to start getting a huge overlap. It's going to be massive. It's not going to be uh, all of this um, shifted around like slice and diced opinion stuff that happens. That's demagoguery is that and it's done on purpose. And that's his position. The worker side and all workers, people working shoulder to shoulder, they are very much uh, same kind of same thing. Anti precariousness is like the, you if you go around asking people, that's like one of the main things. If you were to ask him, hey, if you have a magic wand, wave it. Um, and you could change three things about your, your community's work life, their professional life. Uh, they end up having very similar, very similar. Some people don't, but 80% of the people, they have very similar uh, top three. Now, they're going to say something about this precariousness. Um, they're going to say something. Sometimes it'll be like medical or something like that or whatever. And how they autonomy. A lot of people like autonomy. Like, oh, I want to be able to work when I want. It would be nice and all that stuff, you know. Um, but um, kind of getting all over the place with bringing it back to democracy. But that, that's kind of what I wanted to, to put out there. And if you. Thanks so much. If, yeah, go ahead. That's all. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much, Watson. Uh, very, mm -hmm. very informative. Thank you so much for calling in. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm going to go to the next caller, and that is Lance. Hey, Savvy. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Welcome. Hey, hey. Uh, yeah. So, oh, I have to say this first, so I don't, I have an aspirational thing. It's not a 501c3, which I'm guessing that's what you do when you do mutual aid networks. And I can't wait for the tutorial. I have a great ac ac acronym. And, I, you know, I'm going to really do it, if, you know, figure out how to do it. Hands United Mutual Aid Network spells human. Okay. And it's aspirational at this point, but I can't wait for the tutorial. I'm going to set up a 501c3. But what is exciting is this is not just aspirational. I don't have an opening date, far, far from it. But 
I had an idea to start like a cafe. It's an idea, a proposal I've had for a long time, you know, so it would be well, kind of a worker co-op idea. But in this case, because of really from listening to people like Chris Hedges, et cetera, and just knowing, knowing people that have been in and out of the system, um, I want to start a cafe and then eventually it'll be also like a boutique type thing. And then eventually a CSA, uh, you know, uh, community supported farm, you know, agriculture uh, with a kind of a farm farm thing with a 4 age kids connected with inner city kids that do urban farming. I even have Trumpers that own businesses or one lady who's into it. I thought, oh my gosh, she's going to say, eh, I don't know. Right. Because I specifically, I didn't pull, I said, yeah, it's going to be inner city kids. Maybe they can go out and see cows and, uh, you know, 4-H type kids, could not, a lot of folks work at Dollar General in the country, they're not all farmers, but the ones that are, that work in the inner city and, you know, see how that stuff goes with the urban farms that go, our farming is going on. So it's like, hopefully, but the important thing is, though, the whole idea of doing this, to be run and be a workers' co-op, to be run and, of course, owned by prisoners, ex-prisoners, uh, and then additionally, homeless, disabled people, Okay. And I pitched that idea. It's they're not a venture people, that, but it's, have you ever heard of SCORE, Service Corps of Retired Executives? Yes. They're amazing. They're unbelievably amazing. They're like, it's like free, you know, mentors. So, you know, she said, it's a noble idea. I want to see it happen, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, okay. She's like, I need a business plan. Now, I knew that was different than a proposal. I need financial stuff, not just the idea stuff. You know, and the, also I have, you know, I had an overall when I did the proposal, originally I had a very realistic way that it would be financed. You know, the cafe is cheap stuff that was, you know, high margin. Then we get into more expensive stuff, but ah, but ah. So, I mean, I had an overall plan of how to make it financially viable, but not specific. Anyway, she, text, she emailed me back. I, I, I had tetanus shot because I stepped on a nail. I was out of state for a wedding. A lot of things happened on my personal life. I didn't get back to her, but I had a lot of the, anyway. And she says, hey, I hope you haven't cooled off. So she's totally into it. So I also have a place called the jail ministry. They mostly help people, you know, in jail or prison with services that they should get but don't. And then there's a place called the jail coalition. So they're both, you know, into it. So it's like, I think it's going to happen. I mean, I don't have financing, but this is the kind of thing they can help with. So, you know, the mutual aid network at this point, aspirational, but hopefully like within maybe a year, I don't know, I might have a little cafe going that'll be a work co-op and uh, run and owned by homeless folks and other marginalized people. This like, is really great to hear, Lance. See, this like is the kind of, yeah, like, no, this this is really great. Like, this is what we want to see people do. Like, this kind of stuff. I'm not saying everyone has to do exactly what Lance did, but I mean, like, we need to be celebrating these types of wins. Mm-hmm. We really do. Like, if you start something, I'm going to put the tweet out tomorrow. But you know, I'll put the tweet out tomorrow asking people, if you started a worker co-op, please contact me. Because like, if you start something where you're helping people in the community, I think we need to start celebrating these wins and we need to give more attention to it. Yeah. And, you know, I'll say this. It's not like, gee, I really want to help those poor prisoners. I hope I can show them how to trick. No, 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 no. They'll teach me. They will school. Listen to Chris Hedges. These people are smart, whether it's legal stuff, whether if they worked in the kitchens in the prisons, right? They ran this stuff. Somebody, they had, you know, they're feeding their fellow prisoners, whether they're getting 13 cents an hour or paying nothing. So these people will come in, boom, they will be able to hit the ground running. They will be peak productivity compared to anybody else with equal uh, experience. Homeless folks, same thing. Because they're going to be hungry. 
I don't mean that, in the, you know, I don't, that sounds like almost crass. But no, I, what I mean is, yeah, people that were formerly employed or people that just got off drugs. And there's all these groups that can help that. Yeah, this person's ready to be back in the community. You know, they've gotten off stuff. They have this experience. So there's already groups that can funnel people into these these things that, you know, people want to do. Workers call. They will be the most highly motivated. Disabled people. Are you kidding me? I know for a fact they are the hardest workers. A lot of yes. times. A lot of times in restaurants that I've worked, to be frank, these people were taken advantage of, but they had a job and it was permanent because they were loyal and they always showed up, you know, and, you know, they were treated well personally, you know, because they were so valuable and loyal to the boss, but they were, you know, paid really bad and didn't get treated so good like everybody else in the place. So it's not like they were treated worse, you know, in, in some ways, but there's, but so I know that in my long experience, people that are disabled, people that have the, they work twice as hard, you know, they're just motivated and they just do. And I'm not trying to put halos on people's heads. This is reality. This is really true, you know? So anyway, I think those three groups will be more, not just equally, but more productive than, uh, uh, you know, people with the same like experience level and other things, you know, or in the same, you know, in the same areas. So I'm, you know, I'm optimistic about all that. And the fact that I have this help, I can talk about it more than just, yeah, it's an idea because great ideas and six bucks will get you, you know, uh, you know, Starbucks latte, but to have these three, you know, especially score behind me, I, you know, and really enthused about it. It's like, yeah, it could be a reality, you know, someday soon, but um, yeah. That is great to hear Lance. Thank you so much again, like more good news. Yeah. You know, hopefully, you know, and I'm, I have to drop it because it's like, you can't just talk about it, talk about it but it's so exciting that I'm really, you know, starting to see the plans. But now I'll, I'll tell you, I'll call in five more times, but until I have, yeah, man, you know, we, we have funding or partial funding, then I'll, I'll mention it again, you know, otherwise it's like, everybody's got good ideas and not, you know, you can't go, but yeah, it's exciting to even be able to mention it as a real thing, a pop, you know, kind of a real possibility. Could I say one thing about the whole democracy, democracy's gone. You listen to George Carley, you listen to, well, Chris Hedges recently, but he's been saying stuff like that a long time. But to that general topic, the deliberate dumbing down of America, right? I mean, mm. we know, you know, about the Reagan education secretary who literally said, we cannot have $250 a semester at Berkeley. It was 240. We got to make it super expensive because we have too many people in the proletariat. I think he used that exact term. We're going to have too much of an educated, civ-minded proletariat. You got to put the kibosh on that. I mean, they literally said that, just like the Powell memo was explicit, right? Mentioned Nader and and and, and Rachel Carson. We can't have any more Naders and Carson and Rachel Carsons and Ralph Naders. You know, I mean, it's like. And then there's a book called "Winner Take All Politics." I wish I knew who read it. Two guys. And it's, it mentioned 1978, like the Powell Memo 1971, also the gold standard we went off. 1978, then Representative Chuck Schumer. Huh, what a coincidence, right? Literally, this guy's been there 44 years. He's been, and he, he said, we, we're, we're open for business. That was his exact words. He went to the Wall Street people. Said, we are open for business. Him and Tony Coelho from California. And Phil Graham, a Republican, was one of the ones that helped usher in a lot of this legislation that they've been wanting to do for a long time. Now they had Schumer and Coelho in the House, and the, and it was off to the races. So we have Chuck Schumer not to thank just for now. 
What I wonder is how the Democrat, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Forget about all these dumb hick rubes. They got rid of Boehner because he wasn't up to snuff to however wacko you might want to say that there's stuff they wanted. They got rid of Paul Ryan because he wasn't up to snuff to the right wing what they want. We've got Schumer for 44 years. Please be quiet, Democrats. Even the ones that are, have good faith, whatever. Don't tell me that the Trumpers are such rubes. We got people that are in their 90s. Look at the average age of the leadership and of the Senate and the House. Republicans and Democrats. Democrats are way older, way older. So the Democrats, the supposed like, oh, status quo Republican. The Democrats have been more status quo. Now, unfortunately, the Republicans have been less status quo because they've been taking everything to the right. I wish they would go back to the status quo of the Rockefeller Republicans. But the point is, they're, they're, they're getting what they want, <laughs> the base. And the Democrats just turn around and stick their head up, even liberals. But I even heard, who the heck was it? Well, Crystal Ball. But look at this, man. Occupy Wall Street. That was, what, 2013? Look what we got. Because they were, and it was Jill Stein anyway. But look at what we got now. We got student loan cancellation. Really? So in nine years, we got the bare minimum crumb of $10,000 or $20,000 up to $125,000, you know, income. So with people like that on the left, it's like it only takes, what? Do the calculation, 10,427 years to get like what we had between the New Deal or after World War II where we had strong unions. I mean, what is going on? It's not about like radical, like we want more than we ever had. We want the crap that we had from FDR through the world and then after World War II, you know, when we had unions, you know, to now. Uh, it's just insane. And no third party. That's insane. As if to say that if you don't have a third party and all of a sudden the Republicans win everything for a couple of cycles because a third party is getting a consistent 14 percent. Watch, watch what happens. They try to crush it, but if they can't, they're going to switch to the left in a heartbeat. And I, I listed once 24 parties that have been in, that were in existence for 10 years or longer in our history. Yeah, not all, but none of them got to be president. I've mentioned this before. Lincoln got elected. As a third party, the Whigs didn't disappear. They didn't fade into the sunset the way the when the the Federalists became the Whigs or something, or when the Democratic Republicans that was a essentially could have been a third party, except the, the uh, Jeffersonians said, okay, we're not even going to fight the Jacksonians. But the Whigs didn't go away. They were around, I think, for a little while after. Uh, but the Republicans in six years got a president, and so we're just so stupid. Okay, one more thing: it's humanities. They did this with the Reagan thing with the expense, but through K through twelve. They've taken away all of the like art and music, you see. And then in college, no more humanities. And I love to hear people yep. say, when I when I went to school in the mid seventies, it was like philosophy and English, right? They, they would say, if you're going to take philosophy as a major, unless you have a PhD, maybe a master's, you're going nowhere. And you know, in a philosophy, to, you know, in that field. Same with English. In English, maybe a master's you might be able to teach. There's more openings for that. Okay. At least a master's. But as a law, you know, to go to law school, excellent, both of them, because one teaches you how to think clearly and make arguments. The other one teaches you how to write clearly. So philosophy and or English, if you took a dual major in a, as a bachelor's, it's a great foundation to go to law school. Pretty useless, yes, in terms of jobs. But for 240 a semester, women or men or whoever, you know, now a lot of men, you, you don't, you wouldn't necessarily spend four years at anything, even if it's free, just to learn art and poetry. You can read it.
but to do things that are interesting because you're interested in anthropology and maybe you're not going to be an anthropologist. You just become a lawyer or you become a businessman or you become whatever. But just the idea that we've stripped away all that stuff. And, and again, this is what I mean about I'm so I'm always going to be an optimist because I'm a populist. Like Chris Hedges says, uh, you get half a million people surrounding the Capitol. He gave two examples. One guy didn't come back from some meetings out, out of town. It's like it doesn't happen with bloody revolutions. It happens when enough people get pissed. So I'm always an optimist because I'm a populist. But the liberals are so it's like, yeah, we need cheaper gas, not about mass transit. Nobody talks about that on the left. And the other thing about the humanity, yeah, we need cheaper education so people can get jobs when they're done. Why not cheap education so people can go and learn art, learn music, learn anthropology, learn, you know, a, a, take anything they want, a mishmash of classes, keep your grades up, go to four years of college, you know, where it doesn't have to relate to a job, which you could do when it was a couple cool. thousand a semester. Well, listen, Lance, I'm still trying to figure out when I'm going to use these imaginary numbers that I learned in high school. So, <laughs> right. there's, there's so many things that are taught to us, I think, in school that I, I, I've never used. And I felt like they could have taught us other things. Like, even we go back to like, and I took philosophy when I was in high school, and I, I took three history classes when I was in high school. Not once did they even mention the name Karl Marx. Yeah. Not once. These are things I had to learn on my own. So it's like, what are they really teaching us? I mean, like I, I had students, you know, coming to college and they didn't know basic life skills. I'm not talking about uh, academically. Academically, they were very intelligent, but I'm talking about just basic life things that I think everybody should be taught. Like, what is it like to rent an apartment? How do you sign a lease? What should you look for? Like those types of things, those skills are missing. Yeah. And the other thing about people connecting, when I went to school, my school walking route was through the literally the richest part of the city. I lived a block away from the edge of that. And it was very defined. You could tell it was like, wow, beautiful homes. Right. If I lived a block the other way, I would have gone to this other school with middle and, you know, kind of lower middle class. It was like, you know, it wasn't rough neighborhood. But OK, but they were just my buddies. The only thing that made me realize that they were rich kids was when I went to their birthday parties and got better presents than at my own party <laughs> from the, <laughs> just for being a guest at their party, you know, but nobody cared. We played baseball. Okay. I I, I know this for a fact because the school went way down da, 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 but, and none of those kids that I went to school with, whoever lives in those neighborhoods now, they all went to private school, you see, but this was the richest kids in the city families. You know, there was other nice neighborhoods too, but, it's like Chipper Davis and John Drescher. I played ball with them every day. We're good buds. They didn't give a crap if I my sneakers weren't as new as theirs or my, you know, it, it just didn't matter. And but but so they were they were also rubbing elbows with regular folk because there was people that were poor, a few, not that many, with middle class, a few lower middle class mostly. It was a, it was a, it was a regular blah blah blah. But so it, that's all gone. It's so weird to talk to people, young people. Like as an Italian, it's almost like that race, not just race, but like ethnicity, which it became like when I was young, Italian, Irish, you're this, you're Irish American, Italian American. That went away in the 90s, but it's like it's back now. Now it's like you're defined by so many things that, that are like, you know, we didn't just all sit down and sing Kumbaya, but we're like, yeah, we're Americans. And there was just this like live and let live. And the other thing is the ability to live in quiet dignity. But now the corporations have to, they want your eye teeth, they want your gold teeth, they want you to, they want to own the pawn shops and, and, and they want to own the, 
you know, the, the check cashing places. It's not like you could just have a neighborhood that just lives on its, where the, the people kind of help you out. So when corporations own shit, it becomes more impersonal. So the guy that's ripping you off, that landlord, you could you could get in his face and yell at him and, and make, you know, but you can't yell at a corporation. That's why I would never work for a corporation when I worked in restaurants. I would put right in my resume for a uh, owner operated, you see? I would specifically say that. I don't want to work for a corporation. If you're not the owner and I'm not talking to you, not that I'm going to get a lot better treatment, but I'm you know, I don't want to wait. No. So anyway, you know, and all that's gone, all that's gone. The corporations have not just t forget about the money part, but they've, they're vamp vampire vampirically have just sucked the soul and the lifeblood and the, and the heart and, you know, whatever it was that we had and the civility out of us, you know, well said, Lance. Um, thank you so much. I'm going to bring in the next caller, which is uh, Sinway. Thanks, Ab. Okay, Sinway, you are on the mic. Hi, Savvy. Um, so, my obvious answer is no, we don't have a democracy. It's just, no. I mean, everyone... Everyone just sees it, and um, speaking of the education, um, I know this was brought many, many times, but um, it certainly would be nice to um, like take classes whatever you want, and but and not worry about having to make sure oh, is this going to get my is this count to my job or am I doing the right volunteers and internships? Can I even afford those internships Internships to make sure I get enough of that experience to get into the job? And when you got into the part about like um, the older older people um, holding on to those jobs ever since the crash, it got me thinking, um, since this country is also an aging, has an aging population, there's not going to be enough people to take care of them once they retire. I mean, we're already seeing the care workers just getting burnt out and just getting paid so sh getting paid shit to like and just just like not to continue. So, increased elder abuse. So, and yeah, there's not that's a good point. That's a good point, Simway. Um, that I don't think I've talked about on the show before, but you just brought that to my attention. We are getting to that point. Like, we should think about this. Who is going to take care of the older? Okay, so those of us that are millennials, uh, you know, Engine Z, childbirth rate has declined, right? So yes. there are a lot of us, and I have a lot of friends that don't have kids as well. Who is going to take care of us when we get older? Unless they decide to build robots, kind of like what some anime kind of portrays, like the whole, you know, like some animes and mangas, they have like, okay, I haven't read it, maybe I've, I only heard about it, about like the idea of androids like replacing like the human interaction or something. I mean, Japan's also aging population, so that's how that came about. So, or is the corporations just going to, well, increase automation to try and make more of those lifelike robots <laughs> for that? Mm. I wouldn't be surprised. 
I know. I don't know. Have you guys ever seen uh, Black Mirror? So I've seen all of the seasons. And Which episodes? Which episodes? Well, I've seen I've seen all of them. <laughs> but uh, for people who are not aware, Black Mirror it kind of reminds me of a futuristic Twilight Zone. Except like it seems like every episode involves technology, new technology, right? And oh, yeah. And that's why I like it. I think it's really good. And it shows you basically the pros and cons of that new technology and how it affects people's lives. And sometimes like I would watch those episodes like Black Mirror and I think to myself, like, are we already there? Because there's an episode about the robot dogs and we know that they do have the robot dogs at the border. Yep. So it's just it's it's interesting. Then we talk a lot about surveillance we are basically living in a surveillance state now. I mean, it's not crazy extreme, but it's getting there uh, where they want to keep an eye on us. Um, there's episode about that. So it's just, I feel like we're moving closer and closer to a society where we are constantly going to be watched. And what I want, I worry about is people who have decided to go off the grid and there's actually a couple I have to find, you know what? I'm terrible with Instagram. Um, but there was a couple that I followed on Instagram and I was following them because they were building their own house out of tires and they live in Maine and they are off the grid. Well, with the exception of the fact that they have Instagram, but they were building their own house out of tires. Like they one day was just like, you know what? Screw this. We can't afford rent anymore. Like we're not paying for this crap anymore. So no tiny home, build their own home out of tires. And so I was following them like for a while. And I wonder about the people who have decided to go off the grid, because if we are entering into um, more of a surveillance state, what are they going to do to those people? Oh, geez. Yeah. Uh, are they going to treat them like the, like how we're treating how the homeless are being treated then? Are, that's that's a good sure. point. Because I mean, like, are they going to, especially the people who refuse, some people who were refused to have a cell phone, right? Or a smartphone per se. Are they going to make it required so that everybody has to be tracked? Oh, geez. That's... I don't know. It's just it's just a question. And I, I wonder that because, you know, someone like her, like that couple, I'm just like, yo, like nobody knows where they are. Like you see them, them make their little videos and stuff on Instagram, but you don't know where they are. And it's not you can't really figure out where they are. Like basically like, they're like in the middle of nowhere. And I also wonder, too, about the tiny home communities, because that's something that more people have been going towards, too, right? They're like, screw this. It's a lot cheaper just to have a tiny home. Well, now that's become kind of fashionable, and the price High of price. tiny homes is increasing now. Yep. So now you've got people doing van life, where people have these vans, they kind of soup these vans up, and they're like, yeah, I'm living out of my van. And I, I wonder if it's going to get to a point where the government or the police state is going to start treating them the same way that they are treating homeless people and tell them, sorry, this is not considered a an acceptable dwelling. You can't live in here. Somehow that's not surprising, but I kind of considered doing van life, but then I looked at gas. Um, yeah, like, 
Well, okay, besides, well, gas is definitely going to be an issue, at least in my case, as well as uh, planning, like being aware of uh, if it's in the city, where can I park without uh, getting pulled by the police or getting robbed? Um, for example, so if I'm in the city, or heck, I find myself like better off if it was like in a uh, rural area, rural or slash forest or camp place. Well, actually, even a camp, I need to look into prices. So, there's kind of start, it, I mean, seeing the beginnings of that with the people doing van life, I, in a way. So, yeah, it's, the, the U, but, yeah, the U.S. just, just has the illusion of a democracy, and it's sick. Like, um... I I I would be practically repeating myself in all the previous calls, but um, I guess perhaps like before I well find the find that chance of well, moving one day, I'm getting close to my steps of like um, reaching out to my reaching out to the to my community in Howard County, and basically my start would be like I'd be handing out like. Uh, res so was it social resource guides that the county provides, and I would be talking to people about, um, like if they're aware of it, if so, what they think of the services, where are the barriers, and just um, it serves as a way of connecting people, also helping them just get the services. I already got multiple copies of the guidebooks, and now I was able to talk to my um my local organizations about, like, distributing them, especially one of my, well, the local poor people's campaign of they're going to be registering voters, and they can hand out those guides as well, so I'm getting somewhere with, well, my way of helping out people. I'm going to do something like a mutual aid, though. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, mutual aid is helping a lot of people. And unfortunately, that's not considered uh, trendy news. And you're not going to hear mainstream media talk about it. Ain't that true? So, yeah, it's it's unfortunate. And sometimes people say, like, well, how are you supposed to get all this money to do this? Like, do people not realize, like, when people go on strike, you know what keeps them afloat? Mutual aid. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I hope I can convince more of more of my or the other members to start moving towards that. Um, well, let's see. Crescent Group still relatively new and still trying to get off the ground. Um, they're really busy with focusing on elections, but hopefully, with election season over. They promise, like, really move on to other things. Same thing with poor people campaign in the camp of my county. New, so hopefully, uh, this uh, guidebook distribution can like connect them more with the county and get more members, more ideas of, well, moving towards that 
mutual aid or at least work with other organizations that have like food pantry or food pickup stuff. That's that right. Mm -hmm. That's right. We, we definitely need to do that. Um, but thank you so much for calling in Simway. I'm gonna go to the next caller and I'm going to be wrapping up here, um, at midnight guys, just FYI. Uh, let me go ahead and bring in, uh, Vin. Vin, you're on the mic. You just got to unmute. Hey, what's up? What's up? Um, yeah, um, this is a, this is a good topic, but I feel like it does need to be discussed more. The fact that there's just so many, I feel things are getting more and more authoritarian, um, I was reading an article today and I read that three, over 3,000 YouTube accounts have been shut down because of their coverage on the Ukraine war, which is really stunning. Like, okay, you want to talk about COVID, for example, I completely disagree, but okay, there's public health involved. You can make an argument, even though it's a pretty bad one, that okay, you need to limit, you know, people's certain information because you might hurt people whatever that's one thing but for foreign policy issues like insane that's insane to me so the fact that they are willing to censor people for having different points of view on the war and say it's because of russian disinformation it's a pattern that's evolving where every major issue that occurs there has to be some level of uh it's pretty much it's pretty much the kind of establishment line. Uh, like the war is Republicans, Democrats, they're all the same on this. They're very firm on the Ukraine thing. Europe is the same way actually, but we're talking about America right now, but these elites are so invested in this war to the point where even though it's so clear that the Russians are it's very sad, but they're just annihilating these Ukrainian troops. They have, they have about 40 times more uh, firepower. And uh, Zaluzny, who's the commander of the Ukraine armed forces, even said this multiple times over the last months that they have 40 times more firepower. They they cannot they cannot beat them. And Russia is using about 10 percent of their army. They're using a peacetime army. Mostly the Russian uh, separatists are leading the fight. And we're supposed to believe that the Ukrainians are winning. It's a joke. I mean, and, and if you say otherwise, you're banned. You can't speak. You can't even have the opinion. Uh, so to me, it's, it's, it's an example where the elite, once the elites are invested in a certain issue, and we're going to see it with Taiwan, same thing's going to happen. Uh, where it's going to be another similar Ukraine type situation. Both parties are going to be aligned because when it comes to war, they're always aligned. But I, I just think the the most the power the only way to control the masses nowadays, the most powerful way is through information uh, control, and that's through media and that's through uh, social media, that's through the internet. That's how you can if you control information flow, you control the masses. If you control the masses. You don't live in a democracy. And there's many other measures in terms of why this is not a democracy. But I think this goes beyond the U.S. I think you can point to a lot of Western countries that are like this now. But specifically in the U.S., to me, this is the biggest marker of why we're not in one. 
is the control of information. I mean, it's pretty clear to me. It's 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 stunning. I think it's been more pernicious the last you know three, four years. I feel like ever since Trump got in power, it's or even was running, that's when things really changed for the worse. So yeah, fuck you, Trump, for for doing that. Yeah, I think, but you know what? I always go back to the Iraq War, and I'm not sure how old everyone is in the chat, but they actually started controlling information. Um, well, probably before then as well, but from what I remember, they were controlling information about the Iraq war too. They were right. censoring voices around that. They kicked Phil Donahue off his own show because he was against the war in Iraq. The Dixie chicks were canceled because they spoke out against the war in Iraq. And like, I know we've said other people have been canceled, but the Dixie chicks were actually canceled, canceled. They couldn't book yep. any venues. They completely fell off the map and that lasted for about a good 10 years. And so they were controlling information back then. And that was before social media. Once Facebook and, uh, you know, the YouTubes and, and all these other platforms came about, then they started to control it even more because they're like, oh, no, these these websites cannot just have free reign uh, over information. They're going to have to censor people as well. So this is exactly why you guys don't see me do videos about COVID because I had one one time before they put this label under it and then they flagged the video. Um I don't really talk about, I talk about Russia, Ukraine, but I don't do an entire video on it. And I never put it in the title. Smart. And the title no, get, is a, get, get is your a big bags, key. Get your bags, Sabrina. Not, there's no hate on you for that. You got to do what you got to do. But there are these people Or you have are, to do it, or you have to discuss it on like... Yeah. yeah, or you have to discuss it on Rumble or Rockfin, or you have to use code words. But some of the people that have been deplatformed for talking about those issues, it's because they've been mass reported. In fact, that's what happened to Jackson Hinkle. There are Discord groups and Twitter DM groups that exist to get people removed from these platforms. And so Jackson Hinkle was uh, was basically targeted by a Discord group and they mass reported him on YouTube and that's why he was demonetized. And that's that group actually, it's good that you brought that up because that group is actually um uh, directly with the ukrainian government and they have an office actually in virginia uh where they, they send these troll farms out that are pro-ukraine bots everywhere uh, in yep. order to keep the uh, the narrative going in one direction but yeah you're right about the iraq war uh i was around at that time i also uh, did a lot of reading on the vietnam war it was a very similar thing it's the, the it's the same pattern i think the difference now is because it was interesting to me when now we have all this talk about fascism, I, like the George Bush administration was extremely fascist. They controlled the, uh, they control all information flow. They put people in prison without due sentencing, without due trial or process, I should say. Um, you know, they spied on people. They did all this kind of stuff. They controlled the information flow through the media. You had Dick Cheney going up on Meet the Press talking about, oh, according to unnamed intelligence sources, you know, Saddam has, uh, you know, a dirty bomb or whatever. Or he said Mohammed Atta, one of the 9-11 uh, um, uh, hijackers, met with uh, uh, Iraqi government officials in Prague 
that was a lie he told in MSNBC, I think, or NBC at the time, uh, on uh, Meet the Press. And yeah, that's what they did. They controlled the information. So I think it's worse now. Uh, I brought up recently, I think it's getting worse, but it's only because of the social media aspect, because social media was around during Obama's time, but they weren't controlling it in that way. It was pretty free for the most part. There was censorship a little bit, but it wasn't as pernicious as it is now. Now, it's you can't. Yeah, you're right. You got to use code words. You can't discuss certain topics. It's it's uh, it's crazy. I mean, it's at a point where you know you're you, you we're living in a totalitarian state, and I I really view, um, in some ways, I don't want to over exaggerate it. At least when it comes to information control, yeah, it is very totalitarian. But I will say, in terms of uh, uh, the Democratic Party right now, it does remind me so much of the Bush era neocons. It's, I mean, number one, a lot of the Bush era neocons are in the party right now. Um, I mean, Biden is a neocon for sure, but I don't really count Biden as like people try to say Biden is a fascist. No, he's not a. He's just he's an empty vessel. He's not. He does. He just. He's just there. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't even know where he is at for the time. It's more. The party apparatus, yeah, they're they're very George Bush era fascist. Like, I mean, they're very, um, con they're they're very obsessed and they're very insecure about their power. They always want to shut down dissidents, and that's why I was always kind of laughing about last week Biden calling MAGA fascists. It's like, dude, you guys are you, this is projection. That's all it is. But but yeah, Sabi, anyway, I know you had to run, so I'm gonna hop off. Awesome. Thanks so much, Vin. Uh, great, great news there. Uh, bad cookies, you're on the mic. And then after Roger, I will have to head out. Just got to unmute. Yes, ma'am. I will make this real quick because I want to hear what Roger has to say. So I'm going to play the devil's advocate here and I'm going to go ahead and say, yes, we do have a democracy, but it is not meant for us. Uh, the democracy, by the very definition of the word democracy, it is governed by the people ruled by the majority. Uh, we technically have one, but it is extremely broken and beguiled. Uh, we as the people tend to have the power, but we don't like to use it because we we tend to divide ourselves real quickly and really easily. And the powers that be tend to be the ones who do the dividing. I mean, look at Biden trying to blame uh, MAGA, trying to make them out to look like enemies before that. Uh Trump was trying to make uh, liberals out to be like they were enemies. And it's a constant, it's a constant uh, flux of, oh, no, they're the bad guy. Oh, no, they're the bad guy. When you know it's just a, a revolving door of, of the bad guy. So my point is, and, and after this, I'll, I'll, I, I want to hear what your thoughts are. Uh, we focus too much on national politics rather than local politics. I want to know if, I, I believe we do have a democracy, how can we stop being so divided and finally come together to make that democracy work? What's your idea, Sebi? Come together as people on the left or come together? As people in general, by the very definition of okay. democracy, we are ruled by the majority. So it's not about left versus right. It's about all of us coming together and saying, no, this has to stop. You know, you're supposed to be working for us. When have we done that? When have we ever got together with everyone and said, look, we all agree that you guys are fucked up. Unfuck yourselves. We've never done that. 
So as devil's advocate, I'd like to say Chris Hedges is right. He has fantastic points in his article. My thing is, if we do have a democracy, how can we get it back together and stop dividing ourselves between left, right, red versus blue? Even in the left, we're divided, where you'll, you'll have uh, quote-unquote centrist uh, liberals, neolibs, fucking quote-unquote progressives, and then you have everyone else that they call far far left, when, which is really not far left. It's the actual left. It's, a, it's the same deal on the right. So how can we, how, in your opinion, Savvy, can we finally come together and work towards the goal of getting democracy on track? I think the problem is in this country, if you look back at history, when we have come together, it's mainly been a certain group that came together. That's the problem. I haven't seen us come together. I would like for us to come together along class lines, but I haven't seen it done. And I'll give a couple examples. Civil rights movement. That was a particular group. It wasn't just black people. It wasn't just, um, you know, just, just activists. It was black people, white people. Like, yeah, but it just, it, it was a particular group of people that believe that black people should have the same rights as white people. So again, the groups that did not believe that were not a part of that movement. Same thing with the women's rights movement. It was women activists who believed that they should have the same rights or some of the same rights as, as men. Maybe the closest we got to this was Occupy, but even under Occupy, that was, if you look at the people that still was mainly liberals, leftists, progressives for the most part. And it shouldn't have been that way because the whole message for Occupy was we're the 99%. That's what it, it should have been, the 99%, not just the 99% that have progressive beliefs. So in order to do that, to get everybody to come together, we are going to have to stop purity test which I will say on the left is very difficult. So that's going to be one hurdle to get over. The other thing is the best way to do it is you're going to have to do it along class lines. And what's going to be difficult as well is the fact that you do have people who are Republican, you do have people who are Democrat, and you do have people who don't believe that they should work with people on the right. And you have people on the right that don't believe they should work with people who are liberal or who are leftists. And what makes it worse is that you have leftists in this space, and I've seen this multiple times, the moment you tell them that we need to work with people on the right, they will smear you and call you right wing. So even people on the left in this space, even some of them don't want to do it. So that's that's the biggest problem. You're going to have to look beyond political ideology. If you want people to come together on class lines and you say, we want to fight against the 1% and you guys need to give us a living wage, mm -hmm. oh, then yeah. we're going to have to, you're going to have to look beyond labels. Otherwise we will never beat them. Oh, absolutely. It's not, it's not enough of us. It's not enough of us on the left for sure. We're the smallest group in this country. And I want to be clear when I say left, I don't mean liberals. No, no. Like, like so, I don't consider liberals left. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Come on. Yeah, so that's a big part of the problem is that you you even have, I think for me, one of the hardest things has been is to convince liberals to fight for these issues. So 
you're going to have to gather enough people who want to go against the status quo and are willing to look beyond political labels. That's how you do it. And we've seen this done in the workplace. So all the workers that have been unionizing, the Starbucks, the Amazons, they're willing to do that in the workplace. We need them to transfer that energy outside of the workplace and do it in the street and do it that way as well. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you, Savvy. Again, I'm just playing the devil's advocate. Everyone else here was agreeing with you. I wanted to give a different interpretation of, uh, of the aspects of what we would be thinking of later in the future. Um, I thank you for your time. And I just wanted to pick your brain on this. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. All right, Roger Meadows, you are going to be the last caller and then I got to head out. So you just got to unmute. So you just got to unmute. Oh, hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Oh, okay. How you doing, Sally? Um, so our democracy ended in 1976 and 1978. Buckley versus Vallejo said money is speech and Bilotti versus the first national bank that said corporations are people. That set the precedents for Citizens United. Um, even though it kind of goes back further than that, if you watch the first 11 minutes of that movie, The Corporations, um, they talk about how a bunch of lawyers, let me see that, they used the 14th Amendment where a bunch of fancy lawyers used that to try to incorporate um, like corporations to be people. And that was supposed to be used for former slaves. So there was like 307 cases that were filed and only eight, 19 of them were filed by a former slaves using like the 14th amendment to get certain rights and money and so on and so forth. So yeah, our, our democracy ended with that. Um, also, I wanted to ask, did you get the, uh, the invite for the um, Public Banking Institute uh, Zoom call that's going to be in 12 hours? If you're able to um, attend, it, it happens the second Friday of every month. I was inviting you to it, um, but it's put on by the Public Banking Institute. Um, I was just wondering if uh, you got it, if you're able to attend, whatever. The yeah, I can't. Yeah, I won't be able. I wouldn't be able yeah, to attend. Fridays are yeah. is like a full day. To attend Fridays are is like a full day. Got it. No problem. Um, but just to let you know, it's it's the second Friday of every month at noon. Um, also, for um, what do you call? Oh, for Red. So he was asking about co-ops and so on and so forth. Um, you have the um. United States Federation of Worker Cooperatives. If you need to know, you can reach out to them at uh, www.usworker.coop or just Google United States Federation, US, United States Federation of Worker Cooperatives, USFWC, if you want to know, if you need help putting together um, a worker co-op or a co-op of any kind. Plus, you know, they got little, that's the biggest one that, that helps with cooperatives. Um, but they got like little ones that do the same. I mean, we got some out here on, in Long Island because there's people who are, um, what's that word? Uh, the small business people 
they're retiring and their kids don't want the business. So we got like little like groups out here that show how to convert their business to transfer ownership to their workers so that this way their workers don't have to be unemployed when, um, you know, they, the business owner retires. Um, so yeah, just check. I mean, I know they got one in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, so they, they got, you know, they got different, um, you know, you just, you, you just have to really much search around, uh, red. Cause I know he was asking about it, by the way, when he was mentioning Jeff Fort, if you ever watched, you, you have to, there was a show called American gangster by, um, who narrated big man, Vin Reigns. Okay. So every week he would, talk, uh, you know, different gangsters and so on and so forth. That's why I learned about Jeff Ford. The very last episode before the show was canceled that he did was J. Edgar Hoover in the COINTEL program. So it was kind of funny where he did the biggest, save the biggest for last. So, you know, you might want to check that out. Um, also, I see you like my tweet. <laughs> that that long-ass tweet that I sent to you um, with the 13 pages. Um, I think... A good um, thing with was uh, Moses West. We need, like I said, we need to donate to his uh, atmospheric water generators, right? Imagine doing so, since he since he doesn't is not trying to make a profit off of it. That can be something that a mutual aid can combine with. You see what I'm saying? So, establish a mutual aid in um, Baltimore. You know, like when he eventually when he comes over there to you teach him how to use the water generator, whatever the case is. Same thing for, for Jackson. Same thing for Flint. Same thing for, um, what'd you say, uh, Wilmington, Massachusetts? I, I forgot what you said. There, there was a E. coli yeah. outbreak in Massachusetts you talked about. Yeah. So, yeah, whatever that town was that you were talking about, um, that too. Uh, and also, um, some good news. I forgot to tell you this reclaim Idaho. They were a group that put a ballot initiative on, um, an Idaho, uh, thing, right. Where it would like increase taxes on the rich and it would go towards, um, uh, education, quality education fund. And it was supposed to bring in like $320 million, whatever the case is. So um, ever being the ego, maniacal people that politicians are, they beat them to the punch and passed an identical law. They actually did a special, a special one-day session just to claim credit for this ballot initiative by passing it that as a law, but giving like maybe, I think like $10 million more million to the education fund than this would have, than, than the ballot initiative would have. And then they said, oh, we would have passed this anyway, even if this wasn't a ballot initiative. Yeah, okay, like, so you just decided to come back after the session ended for the year, come back for that one day and pass it. Then on top of that, they put what's called an advisory question on the on the ballot to ask 
the voters, hey, it's kind of like a poll. Hey, do you think we went far enough? We, we, we're actually thinking about doing one. So the ballot initiatives was 310 million. The law they passed was 330 million. Now they're talking about doing one to increase the surplus and more for uh, education for 410 million. So it's more, it's an advisory question, more like a poll asking the voters, hey, you think we should do this too? So sometimes, you know, ballot initiative can force their hand to do the right thing. So, you know, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Roger, um, for calling in. I'm going to head out, guys, because it's getting pretty late. Roger, um, he'll call in. I'm going to head out, guys, because it's getting pretty late. Okay. Okay, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Okay, guys. don't forget tomorrow night, I'll be live with uh, Cornell West. So join me at 7 p.m. Eastern time on my channel on YouTube. See you then.